Hey everyone, my name is Ryan. Go grab some cocoa, sit back, and relax because it's a holiday episode of The Talkie File. Hello everybody and welcome back to another holiday episode of The Talkie File. Today I have a very exciting show. I've been wanting to do this interview for a very, very long time. The person I'm talking with today has had their feet in so many games from our childhood. You've seen his credit before, whether it be in The Secret of Monkey Island, Papa Joins the Parade, and so much more. Please give a big welcome to Brad Taylor. And while you're at it, tell us about your holiday plans for this year. Our winter plans are, you know, to hunker down and avoid whatever small amount of rain we're going to get this year. <laughs> so, um, not not a big plan, holiday planner. Uh, we'll probably have uh, some turkey, etc. on the the day of uh, Thanksgiving, etc. But, uh, and then, you know, Christmas and all of that. Uh, we're not big holiday people. We're, we give gifts all year round rather than, you know, the single times of the day. It's funny you mention uh, the rain because uh, where I live right now, it has been doing a lot of rain in the wintertime these past uh, couple years. Um, Everyone keeps saying we're going to get a snowstorm this year, and I I just don't see it. We get, uh, it it varies. I mean, some years if we have like an El Nino, it will get, you know, hammered with rain. uh, But most of the time, it's so pleasant here in California. It's ridiculous. I've been wanting to uh, visit California for a long time now. And now where I work, it actually gives me an excuse to come over there um, because our corporate office is over there. So hopefully someday I will actually get to visit the beautiful city of California. Look me up. We'll get a cup of coffee. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be fantastic. All right, Brad. Well, thank you so much for telling me about your holiday plans. And we've got a lot of questions ahead of us today for the Programmer's Digest. So let's just jump right in. Uh, Starting from the beginning, can you tell me about how you got into programming? And was it what you wanted to pursue or did it kind of change directions? Let's see. That's going back a long ways. Uh, (laughs) Let's see. Where did it start? Uh, well, you know, it's like in the 80s, uh, every kid, you know, wanted a computer. Uh, I was no different. Um, I, I didn't know I really wanted one until my friend had one. And uh, uh, I got to play a game called Adventure on his PC. And it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. You know, you type in your commands and the thing just, you know, tells you where you're at and what you're seeing. And you just basically, it's a text adventure and enjoy that. I was the typical kid that you uh, don't invite over to your house because you'll just stay there and play your games all day. Uh, (laughs) Which my friend Brett uh, was happy when I got my own computer, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the first game that I actually played that was a text adventure, that set me off. And I knew what I wanted to do from that point mm-hmm. forward. I wanted to make something like that. Before that, you know, I wanted to be an artist. I liked drawing. I never had the real skill for it, uh, but I certainly enjoyed doing it. also played Dungeons and & Dragons and those sort of things. I was your typical 80s nerd. <laughs> but once I, I found a text adventure, it was... It, fairly clear what I wanted to do. I wanted to build something like that. Mm-hmm. So that got me started. My friend had a PC, which I wanted a PC, but they were so much more expensive than the Commodore 64. So my parents opted for a Commodore 64, which actually I'm very glad they did. It was a much more meager machine, which required a lot more effort to get really cool stuff going. So I 
had to work for it, you know, back then. Yeah. You're the very first PC you got. What was that PC? It was a uh, XT, a Turbo XT, a, a rocking eight megahertz. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, it had a, a Hercules video card, so it was Ooh. all really low. Well, not low resolution. Actually, it was high resolution for those days. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, you know, monochrome. And as soon as the VGA card came out in a price range that I could afford, I sold my Commodore 64, my Commodore 128, and all the disk drives and all my software so I could buy a monitor and VGA card. And uh, that was the best purchase I think I ever made. Because <laughs> it was uh, so much cooler. The, uh, the PC at the time uh, had so much more RAM. I mean, it had 10 times as much RAM as my Commodore 64. Well, that's really cool. Um, I'm going to drive off the path of our questions here for a quick second, uh, because you and I have been talking for a while now about um, how far technology has advanced. Like, when you got your very first computer, did you ever see these advancements that we see now um, where these computers can generate uh, artificial intelligent images? Like, did you ever see that happening back then when you had your first computer? To the degree that it's happening right now, uh, I, th I think it's exceeding my all my wild expectations right now. I mean, the uh, stable diffusion, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, movement, uh, they're opening up tech for anybody to use, uh, really changed things. In the last almost two months now, it has just exploded. It went from, you know, minutes an image to literally seconds an image uh, in the last two months. I'm blown away. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. think I, I saw that coming. Uh, when uh, I first got my first computer, we saw lots of uh, new, or new to me anyway. I had a 300 baud modem, and uh, we had lots of local BBSs. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got most of my software from. Uh, which was, you know, things that people had uploaded to local BBSs and uh, whatnot. And you could see that things were going to change with that. It just was real, real slow. Like yeah. you could you could drive a disk over to a friend faster than you could send a disk over over the modem thing. Matter of fact, my friend Pete and I used to do that all the time. We would just save up stuff on disk and just trade disks every once in a while on things that we wanted to you know, send back and forth because it was just faster. You know, you could wait yeah. a day and still be faster, <laughs> you know, than what you could do it digitally. That's, it's funny you say that because um, uh, back when I was in high school, I mean, I, I would definitely say internet has gone faster, um, but you'd be surprised how many times like I was with my friends and we would just like share things over a flash drive because we would share some decently big files and just like to upload it to Google Drive and then have someone download it. It still was like a slow process. So that's that's very interesting that um, swapping CDs back then um, and this was just a not not so long ago i was doing that same exact thing just with usb flash drives that's just really interesting to think about yeah they we used to joke about bandwidth uh that nothing beats a station wagon with dat tapes in it you know <laughs> it's like you can fill that thing up with you know uh, hundreds of dat tapes and drive them at whatever speed you can get that thing up to <laughs> so the bytes per second there goes through the roof <laughs> 
Man, well, that's really cool. I'm I'm glad we were able to uh, talk about that for a second because it's amazing to see how far technology has come. And honestly, to to hear um, firsthand to to where we are now is just it's amazing. Um, so I want to ask about um, a little bit more about what you uh, what you did back then. You said you uh, liked doing art. Um, how long were you doing art for? And if I'm not mistaken, because of the AI, you're still still doing art now these days. It's just the computer's generated. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the art you were doing back then to maybe some art you're doing now? Oh, sure. Uh, the art that I did back uh, in, the, in the 80s, I was only a teenager when I got my first computer. So I was relatively uh, bad at drawing and, well, bad at everything since I was a teenager. Let's see, my art back then was, you know, any sort of cool rock poster, that sort of thing. I would try to mimic what I would see and never to any degree that was worth sharing. Uh, My art teachers were always giving me nice try, you know, marks, if you will. You know, keep trying, you'll get it, son. You know, and I was like, yeah, sure I will. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. So that was then, uh, not very competent artist back in the... 1983 or 84. Um, these days, I'm still not a competent artist, but I can describe what I want. And AI is getting remarkably good at coming up with cool-looking pictures. Not necessarily what I had in my mind, when I, but it generates things that I'm like, yeah, that would have been in my mind if I'd have been that bright. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. Uh, the art now, I've been just collecting characters. Um, I, for the first month of uh, Stable uh, Diffusion's existence, I was afraid that people would just basically t- take it away from me. Uh, so mm-hmm. I just generate as many images as I possibly can on different subjects, trying to get characters that I felt would uh, be consistent in a world. And uh, I finally narrowed in on a style that I really enjoy looking at mm. i don't know if other people would enjoy it as much as i do i actually think that some shared experience is required for art you know the people have to be looking at exactly the same thing uh for it to be appreciated uh and when you have tens of thousands of unique images uh, to sift through um that's a lot to expect of anybody um let alone you know just me finding the gems um yeah you know most people would be overwhelmed with a 50,000 by 50,000 pixel image um but you know just scroll around it would take an hour to look at it all (laughs) maybe longer might need an ai to sift through all the ai images (laughs) Uh, it it would help I, i definitely need to come up with some sort of new file folder system uh because i have folders with the same file names in it because I have a process that I use. So everything is output 001 through 00, you know, however many I have generated. And that's usually in the thousands. And each folder has the same file names in it. So, I mean, they're differentiated by topic at, at the folder level, but the inside of them, they're all, you know, output.png. You know, so it's like, well, is this the one? Is this the one? Oh, is that folder? <laughs> you know, so I, I really need like a multi-page way of looking at many folders at the same time, going and scrolling all of them in unison. I watch people, um, you know, showing their process of reading Reddit, um, 
people occasionally share their workflow and whatnot. And it's amazing how fast they are. Uh, I, I, I'm, you know, relatively slow in comparison to these people that have uh, been using Photoshop and this at the same time and other tools, just the speed of which they're able to composite things together just is shocking. Oh, yeah. I, I think in a year we're going to have some wild things out there. I can't oh, yeah. predict what they're going to be, but it's going to be wild, I think. Oh, yeah, indeed. All right. Well, um, this is a very, very important question that I want to ask you here. What was the very first program that you've ever created? Uh, the very first program I ever created was probably a sprite moving across the screen. The... Uh, Commodore 64 manual came with a basic programming guide for it, and it taught you how to uh, display a sprite, how to make sounds, and do a few other basic operations with uh, your computer. And that was probably my very first thing. It was probably the version of the balloon demo from the Commodore 64 manual. My parents didn't... Um, to buy me software with the uh, first computer uh, so I, I had that manual and the computer uh, to play with for you know that whole holiday break and I went to the, you know the local bookstore and picked up more programming books on basic uh, computer games rather than picking up one game I got a couple books and mm -hmm. uh, that was much better uh, for me because that was kind of my bent, you know, I wanted to do something with it. Um, and that was the best way. I, having a computer that boots up right into a programming language was great. It kind of forced your hand to go down a certain direction. So uh, first programs, really all in basic. Took me mm -hmm. a while to uh, wrap my head around basic in general. It was brand new to me. I'd never really done any programming other than you know uh, what was in the manual and uh, picking up books like a big basic uh, games book and more basic games um, that had um, things like hunt hunt the wampus and you know other like eliza really typical programs that were cool back in the uh, 70s <laughs> um, <laughs> were uh, those uh, books were what were available to me in my my budget um, so I, I typed in a lot of games um, yeah. from those books early computers really were about more manual <laughs> things than yeah today you know I I have an interesting question that stemmed from that um, it, it's regarding programming books now I I've always loved visiting my local libraries but they've never had many programming books there because and they, they have always told me it's because computers change so much that if they spent money on buying books in the next two years or so those books would be outdated was that the same thing back then uh well relatively <laughs> they were all over the board i was lucky in that the town that we uh, were living in had a university Sonoma State University was literally right behind my high school. Uh, so all of the uh, journals and whatnot that uh, college students were reading is what I had access to. I, I did Not at first. It, at first, I didn't get the smart idea of going to the uh, college to look at things. Uh, 
but um, they're rel relatively uh, all over the board. In the early 80s, you know, computers were still kind of uh, a novelty. Uh, even at the university level, I think their computer department was relatively small. I think they had maybe 20 or 30 terminals that uh, was sufficing the use of all of the students uh, hmm. at the time, which is a relatively small amount. Um, I, a lot of the books at the time were so far above my uh, understanding, you know, it's like my exposure mm -hmm. to mathematical notation and things like that. A lot of programming was all about the numbers uh, back in the back in the early 80s because, you know, yeah. it's like you couldn't uh, do a lot. Uh, yeah, so the books were relatively primitive, and I had access to uh, the books at the uh, university. So we, we were talking about BASIC here a little bit, but at the time, what other programming languages were you working under, and were there any that you wanted to learn instead, or what was like that kind of flow like with your programming languages back then? Ah, well, it went from BASIC to assembly language. Uh, 6502 assembly language specifically um, is what the Commodore 64 had in it, uh, 6502 variation. And, uh, uh, you know, and in school we did Pascal and COBOL and RPG and a number of other things. That was actually kind of later in my uh, career. One, once I actually got out of high school, I went to work at a junior college. Uh, I was taking mm -hmm. classes there, and uh, the job that I got was as a lab assistant in the uh, computer lab. So mm -hmm. all of the students would come in, and they had terminals and PCs, and you know we had just gotten some Macs. Um, but as a lab assistant, I was there to basically fix printer jams. You know, okay. <laughs> somebody would come in and say, "Hey, uh, I can't print." You know that sort of thing, but that ultimately led to me um, helping people with homework and learning all of the various pieces of software that the college was teaching. Um, mm -hmm. And then the students would come in. Uh, so I had to be familiar with, you know, I could feel the Pascal question or COBOL question or the database three question, you know, those sort of things. Mm -hmm. uh, back when the software catalog of the world was relatively shallow, <laughs> you know, there was, <laughs> hundreds of programs that were popular uh not yeah. tens of thousands of them yeah correct me if i'm wrong assembly is a uh, low level programming it's right right there is it machine level at that time or is there one step in between uh well machine code is usually just bytes uh, okay uh assembly language is a little more human friendly instead of you know typing or OCX, you know, and whatnot, you would actually have a mnemonic uh, value like ADC or LDA or whatever the command is that you were trying to do. It was a little bit more verbose than most things, but it was also very simple. I mean, the uh, computers, uh, the 6502 had three registers. Well, hmm. it, it technically had a couple you know, other things you could use like registers, but uh, A, X, and Y, those were your variables, <laughs> you know, so you you had to, you know, do things uh, mm -hmm. elaborately because uh, yeah. it, it didn't, you know, lots of variable swapping and things to just get anything to do uh, yeah. done. 
would you say it was more basic than basic? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Actually, it was, <laughs> it was more basic than basic. It, it was a lot more demanding of you because mm-hmm. uh, you had to plan out a lot more and you had to figure out where the variables were going to be stored and, you know, addresses were important and assembly language and basic, not as much. I mean, the addresses of what the sprite control registers were was important, but yeah. not in the same way. Like you had to, I'm going to put this variable right here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the type of things you'd have to do and specify in assembly language, whereas basic or any other high level language, you wouldn't have to do this or same things. Yeah. So as programming became more of an interest, did it ever take driver's seat over other projects you were working on, like how you said you were working on art? When did it start becoming the driving position? Oh, that's that's a good question. I think the first uh when it's kind of you know when my obsession took over if you will because there was a a point in time where i was very interested in computers and and then there was a point where i was super interested that's all i wanted to do um and that didn't probably kick in until probably 85 or 86 before that i was kind of a casual programmer but yeah uh as did it take over it was a couple years of uh just kind of being a hobbyist, if you will. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I was a hobbyist up until 1990 <laughs> when I got my first job. Before that, I was a hobbyist. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so moving into LucasArts, can you tell us how you found the job? Oh, sure. Um, I was working at the computer lab at the Santa Rosa Junior College, fixing printers and and helping people with homework. And the lab coordinator, she had gotten a, I think a physical letter uh, from LucasArts that said that they were looking for game programmers and game testers. And she passed that on to me because she knew that I I liked games and working on software. (laughs) And she was was interested in having her students be um, successful. Uh, Normally they routed people into working at the county you know, so mm-hmm. anybody that was showed, uh, you know, the ability to program in COBOL was, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> routed in a certain business direction. It's like, oh, the county really could use you. Anyway, she saw this ad well, letter that said that we're looking yeah. for. And I wrote up my resume and, and I immediately started writing, um, you know, something I thought would be cool. Because I saw mm-hmm. their demo of, I think it was Indiana Jones. Um, and it had their opening sequence with the uh, train cars going by yeah, and all of that. And it was like so fast and cool. I wanted to do something like that. So I, you know, grabbed their logo and I did some, you know, fancy transformations on it and whatnot. Um, and I thought it was really cool. I thought it would show performance, you know, that I cared about those sort of things and went that extra mile. They never looked at it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which was uh, kind of disappointing at the time because I, you know, I'd put all this effort into it. And I'm like, really? You don't want to see it? I, I promise yeah. it's cool. Um, but <laughs> they didn't want to be provided uh, unsolicited games or things like that. They didn't want to, if they had something in progress, if you had somebody random come up to you and say, this 
is what I'm doing and it overlaps with something that somebody else is doing, then suddenly there's liabilities and whatnot. So I understand why they didn't want to see it uh, at the yeah. time. Did they eventually uh, see it though? I'm, you know, no. Actually, oh. uh, that just you know withered away on a disc somewhere. Um, hmm. I had uh, been working on a different uh, game at the time. I, uh, there was a game that I saw called Columns, okay. and it was uh, fascinating. I was like, oh, this is a really fun game. And it had some uh, uh, aspects that I didn't like, so uh, I wrote a uh, version of it. I'm like, I really want these pieces to do diagonals. And mm -hmm. so I'm like, oh, I'll just write one. And I wrote um, wrote a game in a few days and released it at local BBS and whatnot. Um, Steam. They did see that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the equivalent of Steam. <laughs> yeah, the uh, software distribution. Throw it out there and see if anybody ever uh, gets it. I had no email address or anything like that, so no one could get in touch with me. Um, mm. So I really got no feedback on that, other than I, you know, threw it out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. The uh, they didn't really look at any of my software um, beforehand. They just took it all on my word that I would uh, write software. Um. So keeping in the vein of Lucas Arts here, can you talk to us about Ron Gilbert? What was it like meeting him for the very first time? Oh well, it was. Everybody was so impressive uh, at LucasArts, um, the makers of Star Wars. They're, they're gods among men. The uh, <laughs> so walking yeah. into that was uh, amazing to me. You know, I was meeting people that had been in the industry for years, mm -hmm. um, and at the time, you know, I I considered them age my peers age wise. Um, but mm -hmm. they had so much more experience than I, I had. Uh, both Ron and Eric were the two people that, uh, I mean, they had been in, you know, building software for uh, professionally for at least six or seven years uh, at yeah. that point. So, and maybe even longer uh, with Eric. Um, but, you yeah, know, they were intimidating, actually. Um, really, really smart um, people. Uh, yeah really hard questions you know and we joked around uh, a bit because the, the uh, comedy was a lot of the interviewing process at, at LucasArts they wanted people that were funny so they and they were funny themselves so yeah. uh, you know humor yeah. uh, was involved in the, uh, the interviewing process they wanted people with good sense of humor, uh, which I believe I said I had a greatest sense of humor. And then, of course, they called me on my, my BS and, you know, tell me a joke. I'm like, uh, I don't have a joke. <laughs> uh, I was more uh, thinking it was like, I have a sense of humor. I can tell you when something's funny. Rather, you know, that was my <laughs> pathetic, you know, turn around trying to, you know, I don't have a good joke. Uh, <laughs> You know, these people were all impressive. Heck, the uh, game testers, you, you would think um, it would just be the lowest on the, the rung of you know things, but these people were incredibly intelligent too. I mean, we had literal rocket scientists you know, uh, on some of these you know, people who were you know, working, at getting their PhD at, uh, at Berkeley. 
in science, you know, science, you know, so it's like uh, the, the all strata of, you know, the company, you never knew who you were speaking to or yeah. what their skill set was, but you could almost guarantee that it was something impressive. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. I like that. And I, I love to hear that uh, the entire team there for Lucas was a bunch of amazing people. Um, that's, that's really, really cool. Um, speaking about Lucas there, of course, Lucas, they, they've done amazing films and things. Did you ever get a chance to meet any famous people? You know, I was only at Lucas for two years. And during mm -hmm. that two years, I was so busy just existing and trying to keep up with people so much. Uh, wow. I, I was working most of the time. So I, for whatever reason, I didn't always check the, uh, we had one email machine and one working machine. And for whatever reason, I never checked any of the uh, email stuff. So I was constantly missing out on, you know, Hey, come, you know, be an extra in this movie. Uh, I never read those, so I, I never went <laughs> to any of those. Uh, so I didn't really meet a lot of people. Um, at Lucas, um, if I'm not mistaken, there was something called The Ranch. Um, were you ever at The Ranch? Uh, yes, uh, that's uh, we, uh, Lucasfilm uh, Games at the time mm -hmm. um, was located on Skywalker Ranch in these little um, picturesque buildings um, behind the main house. Uh, I think that was, they were the stable house and they had converted uh, a stable into offices. I mean, they called it a stable house, but it was, you know, not a stable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was pretty well put together for a stable. I'd, let's see. Yeah. It was a, at the ranch. Uh, uh, it, that was an amazing place, uh, just because the history. It's like you could go into the the foyer of the uh, place, and there would be artifacts from various movies uh, there. You know, like the actual lightsaber, <laughs> you know, that uh, cool. was used on the set. You know, you could see yeah. those things right there in front of you, and that was really quite fascinating. So. It's time to jump back into some more very program-related questions. Um, let's talk about what scum and sputum is. Can you explain to everyone here what they mean and what your first experience was with the software? Sure. Um, scum is actually kind of a overused uh, thing because it was both the compiler and the name of the system itself. So it was the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. And mm -hmm. that was also the moniker of the compiler and the system. So when you talked about scum, you were talking about not just the language, but you were talking about the various tools that come along with it. Mm -hmm. But the most famous part of it is probably the language. It was quite advanced for the time and still is actually kind of cool and hold, holds its own in the concurrency side of things. Like it had uh, the ability to cooperatively multitask um, mm -hmm. back when it wasn't the norm. So it rightfully so is very famous. Uh, it, it is cool tech. Sputum, on the other hand, is uh, the thing that most people um, are probably familiar with. Uh, that's the actual game engine itself. It's what runs on whatever platform. You had a kind of a virtualized machine. Okay. Uh, 
and the game programmers would write to this virtualized machine like uh, uh, the machine, if you will, knew about actors and knew about sounds and knew about objects and walk boxes and things mm -hmm. like that. And the language would allow people to write in higher level commands, uh, yeah. like walk actor from this position to this position, um, say this line, check to see if you have this inventory item, and then, you know, say this line instead. You know, mm -hmm. those sort of logic elements. Um, were there, but uh, so the engine was sputum. This compiler slash linker, if you will, uh, was scum. Okay. Um, we had uh, another set of tools. Let's see what I'll, I'll tell you. What we had uh, when I first started, you had uh, scum mm -hmm. compiler linker. I uh, had mucus, which mm -hmm. is almost scum spelled backwards. So it's M M U C U S is almost. C-U-M-M. And that was the program that would take the art from Deluxe Paint and the information stored in another program called Flem. Flem was a tool that lets you define where um, objects were at on the screen and where you could walk, uh, what objects clipped in front of you or you clipped behind, etc. Mm -hmm. And then there was another tool called Bile. Mm. It was a uh, animation tool. It had layers and a lot of the elements that later we kind of expanded on. Uh, yeah. But it, it had a, a lot of those things built in that just were harder to get at because of the tools. Um, or, well, just importing data from Deluxe Paint was a, a chore back in the day. Um, so a lot of art was, you know, drawn in this, you know, program that wasn't uh, quite as robust as e-paint was yeah uh, it had animation facilities that um, like limbs and things like that and choreographies uh, where you could play one animation on and then it would start moving like you could have somebody talking and you could also have somebody talking and walking at the same time and those sort of actions the animation system had that concurrency built in mm -hmm. and which was kind of cool they also had a uh, a program called Spit, oh, and it okay. was it was uh, for making fonts. Um, not that we ever really made very many fonts. I think there was maybe like two or three different fonts used over the over the years. Yeah. A whole tool for you know three instances of use. Not a, not the greatest resource allocation there, <laughs> uh, but so that was what they had. Yeah, they they had the engine, um, uh, which was Sputum, mm -hmm. and the engine itself had been ported. Um, it started out on the Commodore sixty four, and then went from the Commodore sixty four to the PC, mm -hmm. the PC to I don't know if it was the Atari ST or the Amiga. Um, it was one of those two first. And also, the uh, NES yeah. um, and um, some towns and that. Uh, a whole variety of things. It had already been poured into that by the time I had, uh, well, started at there. It was uh, well established. Yeah. I mean, they had already made, uh, I think, uh, three games with it mm -hmm. uh, by the time I started. Um, they were all 16 color games. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> really, really high, high tech by today's standards, 16 <laughs> colors. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, 
the first year of my time was spent uh, upgrading tools mm -hmm. um, and the data uh, from once we went to 256 color yeah uh, everything needed to change all of the tools were written for ega 16 colors fixed palette um, so obviously you you need to upgrade that so that's what my role was i took you know bile and turned it into a 256 color version of their thing and did the same for phlegm yeah and oh mucus uh i so i was i was basically as the junior programmer of the team i got all of the things nobody you know had had time to be uh doing okay. up to that point because both ron and eric had um well, they had jobs uh, and they had responsibilities. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, so there was lots of things that fell uh, uh, into my lap that were, you know, it's not necessarily the fun task, but it happens to be the type of task that I enjoy doing. Yeah. I'm kind of jumping into some of your questions in, in, in here. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's like I had to learn everything, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, so every, everything existed and had uh, a purpose if you yeah. will um but uh learn i learned the system at a different level than the game programmers learned it um because i was taking it apart at the the fundamental levels yeah. like so when i learned about how the walk boxes worked i learned by you know parsing the uh walk box information and porting that code from you know 16 color whatnot to 256 color mm -hmm. and you know, fix all the bugs. And at the time, you had, uh, you can see uh, when you look at ScumVM that there's, you, you know, there's a number of specializations for each version of the language that yes. we shipped. Yes. And, and it's quite intricately weaved, you know, the compatibility that they've done. So um, when we first started, uh, we had uh, two byte identifiers for things. Yes. And that, wasn't enough really so we upgraded to actual proper riff structure mm -hmm. so we were you know had things more organized and same concept that they had before just um, more data structure because uh, we, we got a little bit more ram uh, yeah. and as we got more ram we could you know instead of having two bytes for your identifiers hey four bytes that will will biggie size it to four bytes <laughs> you know um, but that allowed us to make uh, the structures and whatnot a little bit uh, more general yeah. and reusable and uh, kind of the patterns of uh, like multi-state objects and things like that. Uh, we, we changed a lot of things, mucus uh, and vial and all of those things. The formats had to stay the same because they had mm. products that, that were already in existence uh, that needed to continue to work. So I had yes. to work within... Uh, you know, it was expected that it wouldn't stop functioning right. uh, and it would do, you know, what it did before, but now with 256 colors rather than 16. So there was a lot of constraints on yeah. what the product did. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that, how you had to keep sort of the backwards compatibility. And I'm, I'm going to throw two questions here uh, at you at the same time, because we also talked about how Scum was running on so many different targets like DOS, Windows and Mac and consoles like NES and 3DO. Um, but I, I want to jump back to that part here for a second, uh, because you said that was basically already done. Was uh, Scum modular enough, and this is a fan question, by the way, was it modular enough that Sputum 
was easily rewritable for each of those targets and not necessarily break the scum coding that was going on. Yes, that was the uh, secret sauce, if you will. Um, the The game was written for this virtual platform, mm-hmm. you know, the this scum VM, the virtual machine, if you will. And the the, the game programmers would write a script that looked a certain way, yeah. um, but the actors were dealt with abstractly. Like okay. the game programmer didn't say, you know, draw this limb specifically here. That was handled by a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the game was built, it had a screen, had sounds, had a heap, had, you know, actors, had uh, dialogue, had fonts, had resources that could be loaded off disk. And then we had the engine, and that would play back. It's like a player, like you will. If you could imagine the game itself was like a movie file, mm-hmm. and the game was just this collection of data that would be interpreted by Sputum. Yeah. And it would be interpreted by Sputum on whatever the platform was. Mm-hmm. So, in theory, you could port the engine. Uh, and then the games would just automatically come with that. So, and it, yeah, it was pretty modular. Mm-hmm. The game uh, uh, code started in assembly language. Oh. And when they went to the PC, um, I believe it was Eric and to some degree Ron. Ron uh, took a vacation and went to China. And um, at some point, or at least this is the story that I was told from Eric, yeah. um, and Eric um, started taking the 6502 code and transcribing it into C. Whoa. So, so it was, you know, getting it working again, but instead of it being 6502, it was C code, right. um, emulating what the 6502 could do. You know, <laughs> so yeah. there was lots of global variables um, mm-hmm. and whatnot in the engine. Right. Um, even some, at some point, I believe there was probably an AX and Y register variable uh, you know, wow. global variables called, you know, X, Y, and A. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was portable. Mm-hmm. Uh, after it got to C, it was a lot more portable than it was when it was 6502. Yes. During that writing period of making it C, do, do you know if Eric was trying to, because you mentioned emulating, do you think he was trying to, and also for backwards compatibility, do you think he was trying to emulate what that original code did or do you believe he like had the mind and set like sputum needs to be rewritten um but it also needs to be able to uh work with the products we already had but it needs to be rewritten how would you if you know what his mindset was how would you explain like that uh yeah he did build it with the intention of making it easier to go from platform to platform mm-hmm. uh lots of computers uh existed uh, and they all worked fairly similarly internally, but had different ways of, you know, talking to the graphics card or the memory, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but those sort of things are really uh, artifacts of the machine, not necessarily of the game itself. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely in his mind to um, take products from, you know, the Commodore 64 and make them work on the Atari 800 or uh, they had already been doing lots of uh, product uh, 
not remake, uh, mm-hmm. but the game the game would be designed uh, in a long time. You know, you'd build a game, then you would port that game to right. something else, and usually that was you know a game was its code, right? Um, and then you would have to you know upgrade it so it's, instead of talking to the Commodore sixty four hardware, it talks to the Atari eight hundred hardware, right? Uh, and they both had the concept of a sprite and they both had the concept of a background um, and your game programmer just thinking on those levels would um, be uh, better served. Like, yeah. I bet that was a difficult thing to work with there. Um, like you said already with graphics, like making sure um, these things can draw with their API. I bet that was maybe not difficult daunting I'm not sure what the right category to put that under but that, that must have been an experience it was definitely an experience uh, lots of old computers had quirky um, quirky hardware yeah like some things treated you know graphics as bit planes and some had it as chunky pixels where four bits would be next to each other yeah um, another platform might have those four bits straight striated into different you know bit planes um yeah all of that stuff uh needed to be abstracted away because you didn't want your game people uh they don't give a crap about that they just want you know guy brush to be on the screen and a particular size and and talking (laughs) in a certain way (laughs) they they should they don't care that he's made up of you know four or five bit planes you know that 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 shouldn't matter to them right Um, it also shouldn't matter what it looks like right. as well. I mean, because the the system, as I know, you've played around with ScumVM quite a bit and yeah. seen the inner workings of this stuff. Uh, things were set up with a kind of familiar pattern. You know, everybody, all the actors, you know, had uh, walk cycles, talk cycles, these sort of things. And so, in theory, you could, you know, just replace, you know, which actor with a new costume uh the the actor is a you know the variable he's number you know one or two or you know whatever but what his guise is at that time was abstracted away yeah. uh, so you could replace you know a character with a completely different set of art and you know you could write your game you know with whatever characters you had and walk them around and all of that stuff, even though it wasn't the right character, it could be, you know, the dummy character that you're walking around. I mean, it's still a dummy character can write, you know, or yeah. talk and walk and be in the right position. And that, you know, art could be being drawn while you're, you know, using the dummy yeah. um, temporarily. Yeah. So I like that a lot. It's, that was one of my personal, um, set of questions that I wanted to learn more about because it's really interesting to see how it was taken to so many different targets and how modular and versatile scum itself was so that that's really really cool I like that um but scum itself correct me if I'm wrong did you have to go through scum university as well I did and I was there for about a week and then uh uh Eric wanted me to work on something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went from uh, <laughs> Scum U where, you know, Ron and uh, we had a bunch of people that were hired the same day as uh, I was. Yeah. Uh, we had Tammy Borowick, uh, Mike Stemley, Tony Shea, um, Hal Borrowood, and 
I think that was my scum you class, uh, mm -hmm. those people. And uh, we were all given, you know, a seat at the table, if you will, you know, where they basically had us up in the attic of um, the big main uh, house at the, uh, at the ranch. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had our computers all set up in a like a little square. And then, you know, Ron or Tim or uh, Dave would come up and talk about what it was like to use the system. Ron would say, this is what we call a variable or and this is how you define a variable in our syntax, et cetera. Yeah. And then, you know, this is phlegm and this is how you define a box and this is how you define an object and all of that. Yeah. And after about a, a week, um, I had it not down. I mean, by any means, I mean, I was fascinated by all of the, uh, the tools, especially bile. Yeah. Uh, bile was my, uh, my eye opener, if you will. And I was like, Oh, that's so much better than what I was doing in so many different ways, you know? Yeah. Um, so after about a week of that, um, I went and I, um, got my first real task, uh, which yeah. was to, uh, take C code that had already been written and was perfectly working fine. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd been using it. Uh, and, uh, they let me, um, write it in assembly language. Oh, um, take so that we could see if we could get the actor drawers to be faster and oh. generally. So trans uh, compilers obviously get better and better every year. Um, there was a point in time where compilers optimization strategies, you know, weren't as robust as they are today. Yeah. So it's like, it would, you know, squirt out the least effort for it to get the code to work. Um, which not necessarily the uh, fastest way to get the processor to do what you wanted. Um, and so my uh, first task was to write actor scaling routines uh, for the uh, EGA um, version of Monkey Island. That interrupted my uh, scum you. Uh. Uh, uh, it was actually really good. Uh, because I, since I had to deal with things at a lower level than the game programmers, uh, my my concerns were different. Yeah. So it's like, you know, how something is compressed and stored on disk isn't uh, isn't really important to the game programmer. Yeah, it was it was more of a shorter university for you then, and then they kind of just threw the reins at you then, being like, hey, uh, actually, we we need uh, we need bile, we need spit, we need all that uh, redone. Do you think we could just hand this over to you right now, please? <laughs> right. Well, I was hired with that uh, in mind. Yeah. I mean, that they knew that they wanted to upgrade. They knew, um, yeah. you know, VGA was coming around the corner. Um, they had a port of main, not Maniac Mansion, uh, it mm -hmm. was uh, Zach McCracken that they were doing, and it was being done on the FM Towns, which was a really cool piece of hardware. It was, uh, compared to your typical PC, it was really high tech. It was a 386, had tons of memory, and it had uh, Sega hardware in there for doing graphics. Yeah. Uh, so it was like a VGA card plus stuff, <laughs> plus really cool things. Uh, and uh, but the tool set was still 16 color. I mean, yeah. they had to go in there and say, okay, EGA, EGA fugly purple is, you know, really, you know, a skin tone or, yeah. you know, so they, they had to do a lot of, uh, I guessing, but, you know, would look like crap in the 16 color tool. Yeah. Uh, but when you put it in the, the actual product, it would look pretty. Uh, yeah. 
the, there was a little bit of palette manipulation going on. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, they started me in right quick uh, doing doing things. And I think after I proved myself with uh, writing the, the thing, um, the first, and it worked, uh, which was great. Um, that, that helped. It was having working C code to, to start with uh, just was great. Um, right. Because I had I had a working example. You could switch, you know, my code for this code, and if it functioned the same, then hey, I did a good job. Yeah. If it didn't, if it didn't function or it didn't look the same, I did a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Scumu was that for me. There were a lot of lessons that I know that they went on to cover in um, actual game design and game flow okay. and things that I missed out on. The way that Ron builds puzzles and has these uh, dependency graphs, if you will. So when he's designing something, he can make sure that you, know, like you can't, you know, you put behind a puzzle lock, if you will. Yeah. If you can't get the item, you could have never gotten this item by the time you're here, or, you know. So there's these weird graphs that um, you can kind of take things mm -hmm. and lay them out so that you don't have those same pockets of problems where right. you're like, oh, well, these uh, this item is dependent on these this story structure and this element, and you have to have that, and it, you know, it's it's a graph. Yeah. If you will, it's like you get to here, and if you don't have this, so where did the you know the key come from? You know, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, it's like you can see a hole in your um, logic, if you will, of the game as a whole. Mm -hmm. And uh, I missed out on that. I, I think I I still have a less of a uh, a firm grasp on all the finer details of that. What's right. my problem domain? So I didn't have to. Of course, of course. Um, it definitely is very interesting to see how your journey in that uh, university uh, had went compared to everyone else who was in your class. Um, be because you were uh, hired on as a system programmer, someone who was there to develop the tools, um, when it was time, was was... I should really ask first, was this around the times where Ron and Eric kind of handed over the reins of Sputum to you, or were they still kind of holding it on like it was their child or something like that? Oh, it was definitely their their child. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the engine itself was, you know, the face of the game. Yeah. Uh, so Ron and Eric uh, definitely were more in charge of that. I, I came into... Uh, play with you know writing the graphic routines to make them faster or the heap allocator you know making it you know shuffle things around in memory as efficiently as it could yeah. um, they they kept my um, <laughs> the damage that I could do very localized if you will okay. which makes sense yes. uh, you know it's like give him specific tasks you know it's like you know make the actors you know have different header sizes and Yes. Work the same, but with you know more more colors. Um, those those sort of things were uh, my my domain, yeah. if you will. But yeah. 
Well, it is um uh, well known of the amazing work that you do on the Sputum engine, but uh, was there any work that you did in Scum for any of the adventure games at Lucas? And if there was, what was your favorite uh, piece that you did for Scum? <laughs> I never did any scum work uh, in the language itself mm -hmm. uh, while at LucasArts. Um, I did a lot more of that uh, at Humongous. Um, and, and they really never handed off the reins on, on the engine. Mm -hmm. um, I was more on the tool side of things. I mean, and what I did do in the engine were things like optimizations. Um, so it's like, take this routine that was written in C and make it all assembly language and, yeah. you know, make it plug in compatible, um, you know, make it work exactly the same, but just faster. Yeah. Um, the, so they, they kept it very localized. Uh, yeah. when I went to Humongous, um, uh, he no longer had, uh, Eric or Vince, uh, okay. Vince Lee was, a, another programmer that we had on our team at Lucas or Mark Haig Hutchinson. Um, these were all uh, people that were in the, the system team right. and uh, worked on, you know, making things happen. So uh, yeah. once we moved up to Humongous, uh, a lot, I started taking on more of the what uh, Eric would do. So Ron would do the language and I would do more on the, the platform side of okay. the interpreter. Okay. So like when we, um, the games were all built on the PC a mm. after it was ported to the PC and we had an engine and tools that were all PC centric. Um, the, uh, went to a platform, we would hire specialized engineers that were best in their domain. You know, so it's like Vince Lee was, uh, a Amiga expert. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was in charge of, basically making uh, the engine run as performant as it could be on on the Amiga hardware. Right. And we had, like, Dan Filner, I believe, did the Atari ST version. Also very amazing, you know, programmer, um, very specific to that hardware. He know, knew it inside and out. Yeah. Um, when we were up at Humongous, uh, we didn't have... Uh, all the same platform targets uh, mm -hmm. as, as those, uh, but we also didn't have that staff. So uh, as, as things, as, as our product um, catalog expanded, so did our platforms. We had the opportunity to make something uh, work on the 3DO. Um, so when it came to you know, doing that, I you know, was the person tasked with making it run on the 3DO, cool. you know? So, which was, uh, that was kind of like my first real way into the actual engine rather than, uh, the tools. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it was quite interesting. Um, yeah. before, before that, um, the engine was very portable. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was always made, made to be, it was, you know, it moved from platform to platform and it's just in its natural state. Yeah. Um, and then we had people, very uh, talented people, build the specific, you know, version of Sputum for the Atari, for the et cetera. Yes. Uh, um, going to the 3DL, I, I did that. And that's where I um, learned a lot of uh, things uh, about the actual engine uh, that I hadn't. Uh, There's plenty of things like message processing and things like that, that while working on the... Uh, code to 
to draw an actor is, you know, isn't this, you know, <laughs> I didn't need to know, you know, how their input system worked or anything like that. Not until I got in charge of, you know, making a new input system right. uh, and passing those messages on. And when we did that, um, started a, a porting thing. We, we abstracted it even further away. Uh, than it was. So yeah. we had uh, versions of the graphic routines. We had the um, sound system and we had different subsystems that we would um, write. And we started making the subsystems have like a generic C version. All, everything always had a, uh, a C version of it. So it would be okay. portable. And then we would, you know, uh, fix the actor drawer. So they're an assembly uh, memory moves and assembly, et cetera, were, uh, and only do that to the functions it needed. Right. And we started um, building a work like, so you don't, we don't want all your code to be platform specific, certainly right. not in the game. And also in the engine, we didn't want it um, as well. So we kind of started making the uh, platform one layer removed, even from what it was already. Okay, and, and that actually saved us a, a number of times. Uh, like when we went to um, next big upgrade after the 3DO was uh, we went to Windows, uh-huh, and, yes. and that was a very very different um, platform than what we had previously had. Mostly, um, computers weren't um, cooperative multitasking yeah. uh, in in their in their nature. It was like you. Your game, if you were playing a game, most likely you had full control over the machine and you were talking to whatever portions it was. And then when you quit the game, then the operating system came back. Right. Very different when you have an operating system and you have to work within it. Yes. Um, so as we uh, abstracted things away, we got more um, more complete, um, right. more adept at uh, keeping the platforms in sync. Right. After we got uh mac after we got you know windows working we went and got it working on the mac yeah. and then once we got it working there we made sure that we um continued to maintain those paths in parallel yeah uh, so that we could release on the mac and the pc at the same time right after we after we did it the first time we had windows only and then we ported it to mac and then once the once we got a working mac version then we mm-hmm. would you know keep them in sync yeah so that you know we could pull out uh, one game on two different platforms, um, which was really useful uh, for our company. And I actually want to circle back to that um, when we dive a little bit more deeper into Humongous because there's there's a lot of uh, questions I have regarding how the tech has upgraded. Um, But before we dive deeper into Humongous here, I want to ask this. This is a really interesting question. Did Sputum or Scum kickstart any of your personal projects at the time and if so what were they you know i didn't do any real personal projects while i was working at uh humongous or at lucas arts um lucas arts i actually did have one project that i did that was i had started before i um built this game called beyond columns Mm -hmm. and um i i liked the game and i thought it was really cool and before i actually ended up getting hired um, by lucas arts i went in and i made a whole new version of it um that uh, i i later titled it fallout yeah um 
which was a terrible name in retrospect. Uh, you know, never name your game something that somebody's going to come out with a better game of. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so while I was working at LucasArts, I kind of silently released a, a shareware <laughs> version of my game. Yeah. Uh, uh, which wasn't, uh, I didn't ask permission. Oh. Uh, I figured it was uh, better just to do it and, you know, not tell anybody because what are they going to do? You know, uh, making me recall, you know, recall it is already out there. You know, yeah. I, I, I can't do that. It's, <laughs> it's already out there in the ether. Yeah. Um, it's better to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So personal projects, I didn't really do a lot uh, for uh, about a decade. Uh, yeah. I worked on um, the engine. I had more problems uh, to solve in the engine for the various games than I had time for. Um, and I um, kind of did get to do a personal project. Like I, I built a, a junior uh, arcade game yeah and uh that was kind of like a, a personal project if you will i really wanted to do, do something that had lots of parallax scrolling and kind of captured the moon base uh, not moon base um moon commander um oh that's not the right name anyway a horizontal scrolling game with a um, parallax effects and i thought that would be cool yeah. um, and i made made that game happen um, that was a kind of a personal side project. It was a pajama Sam uh, in a boat. Yeah, that was um, uh, uh, lost and lo yeah, lost and found. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was kind of my uh, if you want to say personal project. Uh, it, it, it came out okay. Yes. It, it could have been a lot better uh, <laughs> than yeah. it was, but it uh, that was my like if you will personal project. Uh, yeah, wasn't involved, uh, you know my daily norm right um it, it's it's i actually want to quickly talk about lost and found here for the year that it came out um 1998 um and i want to briefly talk about it because again we're going to be talking about it a little bit more down in the line um lost and found looked like it was a very technically advanced game especially for sputum was it on sputum side you know it, it really was just exercising things that uh the system could do that no one had been using it for mm -hmm. um, so it had those facilities in there i just uh, i wanted to see them used in a particular way uh, mm -hmm. so I, I you know i i did it and really the system had the capacity to do that um the entire time it just we aren't using it for that um, yeah and along those and we had lots of little uh junior arcade games that we did and those pushed the engine in different ways than the uh, junior adventures did yeah the junior adventures had after we figured out a process uh became very not similar i mean there were still lots of programming and lots of things that you had to um do engineering wise um mm -hmm. but they didn't push the engine in the same way as the arcade games did yeah interesting um, most advanced game that we did um was uh moon base commander yeah um, that used every portion of the system uh and more 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I had uh, taken a sabbatical in uh, 2000. Yeah. And uh, the uh, uh, project was still being worked on. And I came back uh, all on sabbatical to work on Moonbase Commander yeah. on contract. Yeah. which was cool it was cool to see it really ship because it used everything it was four player multiplayer you know spectacularly good gameplay yeah the uh sound was really good it used you know the ver uh new sound system and yeah. things like that so it was pretty cool i i think uh, out of all of the items of you know what could sputum do Moonbase Commander is what Sputum could do. <laughs> yes, and Moonbase is a fantastic game. I love playing Moonbase and just being able to... Sometimes I forget that it is running under Sputum because it is well-crafted. Yeah, it, it definitely... Well, Rhett Mathis was uh, genius, you know, just uh, at, at using any sort of software. I mean, he was good at... Uh, you know, scum, because that was what his platform was. <laughs> you know, yeah. it would have been it would have been great. I think no matter where he, where he went with the technology, he just yes. happened to use scum, and it yeah. happened to be a great showcase for the technology. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's circle all the way back around to the start of Humongous. Then this might be a weird question to ask, but do you? Why Ron wanted to start a new company? Was there something at LucasArts that was not providing him what he wanted? Oh, I don't know if there was any, you know, lack of opportunity for Ron at, at LucasArts or anything mm -hmm. like that. I mean, uh, I think there was a combination of things. Um, yeah. He was um, given more time to interact with uh, Shelley uh, Day's uh, kid. Yeah. Uh, who would um, he would watch uh, Travis um, play, you know, like Monkey Island. He was young enough to where he, he didn't have any idea of what was going on in the in the game itself. Mm -hmm. But he would loved opening doors and shutting doors and you know, clicking on things and making the you know character move from point A to point B. Yeah. Um, even though he couldn't understand what was going on in the game, and I believe that the genesis of hey what if you made one of these for just for kids yes. you know and nobody's doing that uh, well, I mean, there are games for children out there but they were not the same as the, like the junior adventure experience where it was just fun and storytelling most of the children's software had you know purpose you know like teaching you how to type or yeah. you know all about why you don't want to get cholera. No, <laughs> <laughs> I remember those games. Great games. <laughs> the Oregon Trail, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <Exactly>. Dysentery. Yeah. <laughs> Dysentery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think it it was a combination of things. Um, seeing that as an opportunity, mm -hmm. as a market that was untapped. Right. I, I think that was really a big thing. We were going to do other games. Um, we had, you know, an adventure game idea um, that Ron was floating around, and you know, we had all kinds of big plans and whatnot of what could what could happen. Uh, uh, but uh, Children's was where we decided to start, right? And uh, eventually, we did 
um, branch out into more, uh, I hate to use the word adult, but uh, adult games, which would be people older than seven. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we did that with Cave Dog. So uh, yeah. at the, that came eventually. It wasn't our initial uh, drive. Yeah. Uh, for the first few years, anyway. I, I'm that I I've definitely uh, heard stories about how uh, Ron wanted to uh, do that because uh, because of because of his kids clicking around on the screen and um, just not like fully understanding the story. Um, so that's really cool that that was the the message behind the start of Humongous Entertainment. That's really cool. Um, Humongous's first game was Putt Putt Joins the Parade. At that time. How different was Scum from the last version that you worked on at LucasArts? It was almost a, almost exactly the same engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the time period, um, Ron had started working on a new version of the compiler yeah. uh, that did uh, math and just structured things better internally in the compiler so it could do math expressions properly right. and things like that. And so Ron was working on that technology um when he he left uh, lucas um to to start humongous he left a little earlier than i did hmm. um and he was working on the new compiler and other uh, implementing the compiler side of things in the engine itself and but the overlap was almost it was almost the same exact engine um with the exception of the new compiler which I believe we shipped first with uh, the new version of the compiler. Mm-hmm. And we also had to do a completely different sound system because iMUS wasn't a option for us. Um, mm-hmm. That was technology that uh, Lucas was going to keep. Yeah. <laughs> Rightfully so. It was yeah. pretty, pretty slick technology. Yeah. <laughs> um, the versions were really same, actually, probably up until about uh, 93 or 94, uh, mm. that's when things started getting really different. Um, yeah. Our our projects were, we just had to do things slightly different because yeah. we had different uh, end goals and whatnot. But we kept the uh, engine as small incremental changes over time. We, it, we'd evolved. Yeah. Uh, we didn't just build the technology. Uh, we always had a reason why we were adding something to it right um we didn't have the luxury of just sitting around going hey let's create things because we can create them <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah no there was a lot of overlap in those first few uh titles like mm-hmm. i believe uh putt putt fatty bear um worked almost the same as you know internally as sam and max and, mm-hmm. and the tentacle since we built things uh, we always improving the tools and whatnot um but once we had the kind of the core structure down of how the animation system worked it was about building data for that animation system to play back yeah. and not more about the animation system anymore uh, oh. so we built tools um, to build that data and that's where most of the uh, things that humongous built uh, since uh, ron was uh, smart enough to take the guy who uh, redid the tools with him that was very <laughs> smart <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, very clever move, I would say. Yes, I definitely would say so as well. <laughs> uh, so the, um, the the tools were the magic part of yeah. uh, of what Humongous brought 
back to Lucas, you know, mm. they, um, at some point we stopped being exactly the same engine. Yeah. It just, it went very far, especially once we went to, um, Windows as a target things, we had to, we just changed everything yeah. <laughs> because we had to, yeah. and we were no longer keeping in sync as well as we could. We were too busy just, you know, building uh, new things. So we never actually got together and merged uh, a lot of the the later Revisions, things that we yeah. did. When we sent them all over the, uh, the agreement was that we basically um, send everything that we do to them and we continue to maintain the tools and, and that's why we were able to use it. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, a smart deal on everybody's part. Yeah. Should and, have done that myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is definitely noticeable regarding how the turns are went with the different engines between Lucas Arts and Humongous, um, because around the time of Puppet Saves the Zoo, when that came out, if I'm not mistaken, the Dig was um, released in the same year as Puppet Saves the Zoo, but by that time. Um, Humongous's sputum was already used in 640 uh, by 480 pixels, and the dig was still used in 320 by 200. Was this mostly just because of the loss of um, uh, talking between each company and being like, hey, this is what we added, um, like that, yeah? No, it really wasn't a loss of uh, communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dig had been in production um, for a fair amount of time, the time it, it shipped. I mm-hmm. mean, it was always uh, a version being worked on uh, by somebody. So the project had a huge existing, you know, game uh, that they couldn't just up and change from 320, right. 200 to 640 by 480. It was well in progress. Right. They had lots of art and assets invested in it. So time-wise, they just couldn't make this, the same leap. Okay. And, you know, in honesty, I, we made it at the right time for us. Yeah. It was probably a little earlier uh, and the game market really, it wasn't there. Right. And in the same way, hardware wise, uh, that came, it did eventually come. I mean, Windows became the, the platform to go to because everybody was running it and, you know, it was a necessity to basically start being playing nice with others in the in, in the windows. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, we we didn't uh, we didn't sh- we shared everything. Right. But there was a point where you know it's like we changed the file types because it was easier to parse. We need, right. we had a new engineer that was working on um, like I had done um, with the sixteen color to VGA color upgrades we had another engineer that was doing the same things because once we went to 640 by 480 and we were going in windows uh we were using it internally in the studio for everything and once we went to 640 by 480 alt tab between the game and your tool or your game in windows at 640 by 480 the vga hardware didn't always reset properly so as you would alt tab away from something, you might be alt tabbing to go to Flim because you wanted to define a new object. Right. And suddenly Flim, you know, stops running while you're alt tabbing. 
you oh, know, no. it's like, oh, I'll just, I'll just test this in the game and alt tab away and then come back and Flem's gone, you know, yeah. and, you know, I, that sort of thing happened. So we built uh, new versions of the tools that ran specifically in windows and ran much smoother. And I don't think that the, um, teams at uh, LucasArts really had time to integrate these tools. Gotcha. And their work for them is the games were already well underway. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, one of, one of the tools you mentioned already was iMuse. Um, and th this was an interesting turn that uh, I always saw in development with, because the Curse of Monkey Island, if I'm not mistaken, was the last game that Lucas did in Scum. Um, but something that I always found interesting was the Curse of Monkey Island basically had CD quality music and dialogue while if i'm not mistaken the first game humongous had was either games to play on any day or moon based commander um was that because the toll of imuse was at lucas arts and humongous just what what was what was like the reasoning behind sound being later developed in the later times ah uh, well <laughs> i uh the easy answer is uh, the engine um, didn't have native sound for the longest time, and sounds and on PC speaker was you know beeps and boops, and it really wasn't pleasant to listen to. Um, so sound wasn't really that big a thing until iMuse came around. Okay, iMuse was um, MIDI um, and had a lot of really fancy interactive options, so they could branch and and do some really sweet things with, you know, adapting to what was going on in the game and all of that, uh, which was really cool tech. Um, MIDI sounds great on the right hardware. <laughs> yes. It's just, it's just beautiful sounding. And um, when we started doing digital audio, uh, the very first audio cards um, that we had access to were all 8-bit 11K audio. So that was kind of the highest tech option at the time. Yeah. So we, you know, we wouldn't have stored uh, data at 16 bits because there was no way to play back 16 bit data at the time. Now it's twice as big data wise uh, for us. Audio was like the biggest eater of data um, mm -hmm. in, in these games. The fidelity was much higher than what we were, dealing with and we couldn't really play uh, so we just stayed at 8-bit 11k audio because that was the technology that we licensed from uh, i don't remember who it was at this point but um, they had the ability to play back audio uh, through the um, port i believe and directly to the sound blaster mm -hmm. um, and ad lib card yeah. <laughs> at at the time, these yeah, were the types of things that you you had to buy an add-on card to play music. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't something that computers just did. Yeah, um, at least not those computers. It's funny. Um, the 3DO version of Putt Putt mm. and Fatty Bear, uh, I believe, have 22 uh, kilohertz audio. Yes, I, uh, we actually recorded um, the beautiful music that we had, yes. and. We played it at half CD sampling rate. Yeah. Because we uh, couldn't afford full CD sampling rate, <laughs> um, uh, mainly because we needed to load in graphic data and the sound at the same time, and we needed to be able to 
bodily change between them. Yeah. But we could afford 22 kilohertz, um, <laughs> so we we did that. Yeah. We also did, uh, and it's it's really subtle. I'm not sure that anybody would have ever noticed it. But when we had walk talk actors mm-hmm. like Putt Putt, we actually triggered sound scaling based on where the actor's position was on the screen. What? Yeah, I mean it's very subtle. Yeah. Um, and it didn't work for actors like Smokey uh, <laughs> because he was placed in a, a different position on the screen than he actually was kind of located at. So his sound didn't always center just right. But uh, Putt-Putt, when it goes between uh, positions, there should be a very subtle hint of right channel, left channel audio uh, differences there. I didn't know that. And that didn't make it into the uh, Windows mixer. Okay. And the reason the uh, Windows mixer stayed at 8-bit, 11 kilohertz, was purely, it's like, I did not want to write another mixer. Okay. It, it actually was really difficult to get um, sound playing on Windows. Huh. It had a great API. Yeah. Um, everybody's drivers didn't necessarily implement the API in the same way. So it's like when we wanted to start a, a looping sound, you know, some people would have a 10 millisecond delay in there for no reason, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which in sound uh, just basically kills the illusion of seamless music. And so we had to play all kinds of really strange tricks. Like um, Windows was kind of built around the idea when you trigger a sound effect, it plays a sound effect and then stops playing the sound effect and something else can go use that sound device. And we needed to trigger sounds quickly. Right, and when you have something that has a an inherent latency in it, like you can't predict, um, we had to we had to do all kinds of strange things, and audio was not my my bag of tricks. I mean, I I wrote it just fine, and it, and it sufficed for years. But I always really wish we had <laughs> hired a, an actual audio engineer just for that. Right. My passion my passion was not audio. Yeah, we should have upgraded it. Once direct sound came out, we did make an attempt to make a work alike for direct sound. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really just the uh, same thing. Uh, I think uh, Moonbase actually used uh, much higher quality audio. I don't remember um, if it was full CD or not. I think it was um, 44 kilohertz, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, so audio-wise... It was 8K, 11 hertz, uh, or forever, uh, mm-hmm. because I didn't want to write another audio system. <laughs> I mean, the amount of times that I heard uh, the startup of Freddie Fish and trying to get that not to have audio cracks in it, oh. uh, I can't even count. It's in the tens of thousands of times that I started that damn game up, yeah. <laughs> you know, trying to get that you know first opening sequence to actually play audio smoothly. We eventually did get it, and it, it went okay. <laughs> but I, I really wish we had had a dedicated engineer to that. Yeah, it's it's very interesting you uh, mentioned that because when I when I did the interview with uh, George Sanger, we were talking about his technology that he had when making music, and um, he he definitely mentioned early on about um like how how some limitations with his MIDI devices, like he would go and write a song and then it just would not sound the same on other machines. So 
that's definitely very interesting to talk about and uh, hear about it on uh, Sputum's side about how they had iMuse and you guys were building it right into the system. It's, it's definitely interesting to see how those two roads um, went. Um, but other technology that Sputum had um, were thing, and we were talking about walkboxes already and Z planes. Um, now the the Curse of Monkey Island, and this was is probably because it was already in development. Like we were talking about with the dig, how it's been in development before um, parity between the two uh, revisions of the engine. Uh, worked out with each other, but to to my knowledge, Putt Putt Saves the Zoo was the last game to actually use seaplanes. Um, why was this tech phased out quickly at Humongous versus LucasArts? Was it because Ron wanted to switch over to the new type of um, graphics where it was hand drawn and stuff like that? Yeah, the the movement from uh, actually we did pixel art in the click points and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Those were all. Uh, digitally uh, done uh, but yeah no uh not having walk um walking actors uh, that basically meant that we could control when something was going behind and in front of things and we could just clip it right there it uh really came down to um speed and simplicity um speed on the um side of to just draw 640 by 480 at one point was a, a, quite a trick i mean everybody else was at uh, our, we were used to pushing around you know 320 by 200 mm-hmm. and uh, 640 by 480 is almost five times as much data um, so we had to be uh, had to use all that excess cpu time that we had just drawing pixels uh, so you know z clipping and things like that um Ultimately, you know, it took time. If we wanted to get, you know, some of those animations in Zoo were really big for the screen, and especially pushed the engine at that time. And just drawing Putt-Putt or the lion lines, I remember them, <laughs> the the cub climbing up the uh, water uh, fall, basically yeah. that scene just killed it because it was fairly complicated uh, size-wise. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we had to do away with certain things like almost all of the optimizations were about turning off features right <laughs> you know it's like don't z clip don't you know try to change your colors don't you right. know uh, it would turn off you know whichever feature wasn't needed to get that particular graphic to go to the screen as fast as possible right and uh so it was a combination of things uh the controlling the user's navigation of the environment we didn't have to do the the clipping anymore because uh, we we you know hand drew the enters and exits for everything mm-hmm. um, and i think that really was cool in, in a different in a lot of different ways i mean very good for children because um, you you don't have them getting stuck in the environment or having frustration about moving around from location to location mm-hmm. it really uh made a lot of sense uh, to go that direction. So we just stopped using it as it became no longer a benefit. That's the reason why Z-Planes went away. Now, uh, speaking about optimizations for the games, between um, Freddy Fish and Puppet Save the Zoo, um, 
it is pretty much known in the fandom that, well, now it's known now that Freddy Fish was meant to be a DOS game until Windows came out. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a lot of scrambling behind the scenes to um, have the engine work in 640 by 480. And that game, Freddy Fish, the way they handed their, handled the cutscenes was they switched to a different room to actually handle the cutscene versus Putt Putt Saves the Zoo using a new file, the Wiz files. Can you talk to us like how those optimizations came to be when they thought about in like in early versions of Putt Putt Saves the Zoo, were they still using uh, technology like switching to another room to actually handle those cutscenes? Uh, it varied. Yeah, it, <laughs> it varied. That's the, the, the only real answer there because uh, yeah. each project kind of had their own vibe on how they were going to do things. I mean, um, some project leads like Tammy's project lead style is different than Brett's, et cetera. So there's just different production philosophies uh, mm-hmm. behind the scenes uh, that di- dictated the differences because this is the way Tammy wants it done. That's why we're doing it. This is the way Brett wants it done. Yeah. So we're doing it that way. And a lot of the stuff that we did, um, we didn't necessarily have firm processes at the, the first start of things. Like uh, with the first uh, and drawn one we did with Freddie mm-hmm. and we were all over the board on model sheets. <laughs> so we just, just drawing that many frames of animation was difficult for us and managing to scan them in and get them inked and painted and all that stuff. Just So a lot of what you see in the change between Freddy Fish and uh, Zoo mm-hmm. was just us getting better at knowing what we were doing. Right. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, we don't have to do that. Just clip it out or, yeah. you know, leave this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zoo actually did a lot more timing of audio uh, than mm-hmm. we had previously done. We were really yes. pretty loosey-goosey with the game's audio before Zoo. Uh, but right. Zoo really wanted to, to do lip-syncing and wanted to, you know, have, you know, the uh, topiary creature song actually mm-hmm. play like it's expected to play. Yes. Um, that brought with it, you know, lots of like, oh, well, we don't have audio timing like that. what are you thinking right you know we can't do that you know it's like all right well you want to do it all right well let's make it happen would you say putt putt saves a zoo um with their audio timing was precursor to and actually not just precursor a lot of the technology that was written for it um started leading into timings for like actual lip syncing which i believe came out in pajama sam one uh was a lot of that stuff reused for lip syncing there or was it started from the ground up again it was reused uh during doing lip syncing um it wasn't i would not say it's easy today it's we have tools that can calculate the the right mouth position based on the actual audio waveform mm-hmm. and whatnot we used to have to actually enter that stuff manually so we would we had this tool called bang uh, which would load you would load up your audio file, and some person would have to go in and you know set the mouth positions for each of these, um, you know, pieces of sound. Right. Had to be had to be tokenized, if you will. So it's like when this is the mouth position for 
O E and you know whatever vowel. Yeah. You know this is for you know L M M you know etc. Those all had to be annotated in there perfectly, and that was cumbersome. Yeah. Um, so uh, we didn't do it as well uh, at first. Um, I believe we tried to do it with Zoo, but um, at some point we changed the way the condition bits worked, yeah. um, uh, which, you know, made the talking stop functioning. At, at some point, I think it's really bad um, in uh, iOS version of Zoo. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I punted on the getting it to, to flip the bits yeah. uh, to, be, to be right. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, most of the things were almost always defined by what we could do at the time, you yeah. know, and we were just not struggling to, to build it. I mean, we just, that was what we occupied ourselves with, with building it. So it's like, mm -hmm. didn't really have best processes until probably, I don't know if we ever had best processes. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we got more proficient at it. Right. Well, that's cool. That's cool. I that's cool to hear how um how uh translative everything has gotten and all the optimizations and what was used back then uh was able to be used in newer things as well as shortcuts. But let's take a pause here for a second about talking about scum and sputum because we're looking back at Humongous's lineup and they definitely had an immersive world of characters. Um, which character was your favorite? I think Pajama Sam's world is the most interesting. Yeah. Uh, the game I'm think most proud of is Moonbase, just yeah. because it used every bell and whistle that we had. And I think Zoo was really when we came into understanding what we were building. Mm -hmm. It was a good step forward. Yeah. The the world was neat. Um, it was very controlled, and the little hub architecture, if you will, for going to place to place was we kind of codified it there, you know, yeah. and it it just just worked. Yeah. Since you brought up Moonbase there for a uh, uh, for a quick second there, would you definitely say that out of all the franchises, Moonbase was the one that asked the most how to speed them? Yeah, it was the one that it was, you know, much more visually. It ran at 30 frames a second versus 10 frames mm -hmm. a second. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that right there, you know, that's a, that's a lot of uh, a lot of difference, you know, between that. You know, mm -hmm. it's a lot more data being pushed every, you know, frame. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and more often, Sputum handled what frames differently than a lot of other engines back then. If I'm not mistaken, it was Jiffy, is correct? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. We <laughs> we used. Uh, a leftover from the Commodore 64 had a Piffy counter yeah. or Jiffy, Jiffy counter. Yeah. Um, and we um, brought that with us because that's what the timing was. Mm -hmm. um, that's what the low low level timing was set on those. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, we were frame based. Uh, yeah. And most people were frame based. Um, there wasn't a lot of really cool you know, variable frame rate things going on until we got hardware that was, you know, capable of doing it. Um, we never really did variable frame rate. Mm -hmm. uh, even Moonbase, even though it does run at 10 frames and 20 frames and 30 frames a second, yeah. um, it's actually internally running the game 
30 frames a second, even when it's displaying 10 frames a second, you know? So that was the, to get the motion and everything synced up. We didn't, um, just didn't adapt to what the frame rate was. We always try, we were assuming that you were going to hit 30 frames a second. Um, and with that, so if you got stuttered, stutters in the performance of something like uh, your I am, which is a message and tells it to redraw the screen. And at some point, then we have to pause and redraw the screen. Yeah. And um, we might miss a frame that way, Mm -hmm. but then it would, you know, compensate and lag for that, that, those frames. And the way, the way, the way um, Sputum handled drawing things, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, did it do all the logic first and then drew to the screen? Is that how it worked? Uh, it was a combination. Okay. It really, uh, some things drew immediately into the buffers. Um, some okay. things didn't. Uh, and it really varied on uh, how performance-wise what we were doing. Like, we cheated a lot. <laughs> We'd throw something into the background and stamp it down as an actor and then draw only the lips or something over the top of it. Yeah. Um, and those sort of things, uh, they were hacks. Uh, yeah for the most part um it did uh, queue up things mm-hmm. uh, so there would be certain types of things that it couldn't do while it's running it couldn't mess with the sound cue it had to be queued up so all of the sound triggers inside the animations would be triggered from the scripts and then from the costumes and then those two cues would be merged together and based on priorities you know one sound versus another sound, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. We didn't, we didn't have consistency on all of that stuff. <laughs> it was whatever got it to work is usually how it ended up. Fair enough. Fair enough. And as, as the systems got faster, uh, we could do more elaborate things like the stomach churning animation in that uh, PJ scene, uh, mm-hmm. push the draws in a different direction than we were normally doing. Yeah, that was really cool. Uh, my first time playing uh, um, Pajama Sam 3 and seeing that, I'm like, whoa, this is cool. So that that's really, really cool. And speaking about that cool stuff that was developed for these games that not weren't normally in every singular adventure game, did, did anyone at the scum level when they were working on the rooms ever had to... Um, learn more traditional high level programming when it came to those more difficult things, especially like in puppet enters race, when the actual race was happening that, I mean, that wasn't a part of scum at the time. Like what was that like? Um, yeah, when we did baseball, uh, a lot of the limitations of, uh, scum's math system or lack of math system, I should say, Uh, (laughs) it became apparent. Um, We didn't have floating point numbers, so we did everything um, by multiplying by 1,024 and then dividing it by 1,024 to hide off the round out errors and stuff like that. Um, But when doing physics and the the limited amount of 3D calculations in the environments that you were... uh, it just wasn't possible to do that in the scum language. Yeah. So we actually uh, set up a, a way for the game scripters to write C code, 
dispatched into that C code to do uh, more finesse calculations. And we use that in uh, race to get the um, projection and uh, all of that done. Yeah. It probably could have been done in uh, Scum completely at that point. It just would have been really painful. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Make it make it simpler on them, and uh, once baseball kind of stepped into that, like, oh, we can augment the engine via C plus plus, and that was when we started doing things, you know, like AI out there in C and um, network communications, mm -hmm. and other, you know, like uh, Moonbase actually uh, hijack the DLL that is controlling Moonbase yeah. actually hijacks the rendering system. Um, and, you know, so normally um, sprites were built on images. Right. Yeah, uh, uh, same communication thing. Mm -hmm. But sprites were basically just queued up image commands. Right. Um, at one point, that's literally what they were. They were they, we didn't have syntax for it in the, in the language. Actually, it was kludge, like 1942 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I wrote scripts that said sprite position image you know all of these things and they would write to this api while we were still building syntax and and, uh, and eventually we got native sprites and whatnot but yeah no moonbase hijacked all of that uh wow. which was kind of cool so these these were all like sort of and uh lack of better words here they're like sort of writing plugins for the scum language then that's yeah. exactly what it was. Cool. Um, the uh, the way the U32 worked, we called it a user extension 32, 32 because mm -hmm. it's 32 bits. At um, should have uh, should have helped uh, things out more. At one point, uh, we had a, kind of a syntactically similar API for the C++ uh, use in the uh, U32s. Uh, that matched the scum syntax yeah. uh, a lot closer. So, uh, matter of fact, I had a compiler at one point that um, it would take the um, scum code as it was being compiled and kick out almost C++ code Whoa. out of the scum code. Whoa. And so <laughs> it was, since it was, you know, spaces were significant yeah. in uh, scum code, and in C++, we didn't have spaces, but we had parentheses and dots to separate out the different actions and whatnot. But, you know, you still had a similar type of way of accessing the actors and the sprites and the images from the C code that was familiar to the scum programmers. Uh, and as we... Uh, scum didn't have data structures. Okay. It had, it had arrays. Okay. Um, so everything had to be kind of built into, uh, you know, you remember that, you know, the actor, not actor, but whatever logic thing, it, it's X position and is in, in slot two and yeah. it's Y position is in slot three and, and whatnot. Um, so we simulated uh, structures by using defines and okay. uh, instead of a dot, it would be, you know, a bracket like you're subscripting a, you know, a variable. Um, but we uh, made changes to the um, indexes, yeah, so that you couldn't accidentally ask for array position two. You could actually set it so it was asking for like array uh, ten through twenty. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, so if you accidentally passed the wrong variable set in there, it would basically flag an error, uh -huh. even though it didn't have didn't have the uh, it happened at runtime, not syntactically, mm -hmm. um, but at least it you know gave you some protection. So we did data structures via flat arrays and used indexes with different positions so that you wouldn't have overlap. Like if you used the wrong variable, it would at least you know give you a scum error. Yeah. Because you indexed out of range, and you're like, "Oh, I used the X variable for this, and it isn't there, and that." Yeah. Um, so we kind of faked up uh, data structures. That's really cool. Well, so some of these, I want to talk a little bit about things that never really made it to the public domain with Humongous, and some of those things, uh, since we're talking about the plugins that uh, Sputum had for it, um, there was some projects, uh, the D3D demos. Um, how come things like 3D did not make it into games, but Aliens Ate My Cookies were uh, pre-rendered 3D models? Uh, how long were things like this being worked on, but why were they decided not to be put in? Well, um, with the 3D extensions, it was really a limited subset of the graphic system. Okay. Like, you didn't get actors in 3D. Um, the only thing that I accelerated in 3D was the uh, image pipeline. That basically meant if you wanted to use sprites or images directly, you could um, you could write your game, but you couldn't get actors in, involved in it because they just had a totally different pipeline. Um, so uh, really it came down to, it was a neat tech demo that mm -hmm. I said, hey, wouldn't it be fun if, you know, uh, but nobody really like, oh, no, we need the actors. Yeah. You know, sprites are great. Um, sprites eventually got cool features like the condition bits that the actors had, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't built in. I didn't right. have a lot of overlap. And my idea with the way I built uh, things layering off of the image system to build the sprite system was with that. And eventually I wanted to get the actors' limbs to use sprites. Oh. So everything would be funneled through that one exact way mm -hmm. of doing things and getting you get hardware acceleration. Um the images because it built things into these cues that would get oh. processed later um and the animation system was far more elaborate than that mm -hmm. um, um so yeah. it would have been hardware accelerated had we uh, spent a little bit more time yeah and nobody really nobody ever played with it um hmm. i don't think anybody uh did anything ever launched it and go oh hey look <laughs> you know yeah it's spinning yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great Next time we want to make the user dizzy, we'll we'll, we'll spin. Exactly. Yeah, that's so. that's very interesting to see that um, you were pushing for sprites because um, it, it's it's interesting because especially in the last Freddy Fish game, there seemed to be a lot less of actors and a lot less of things that what scum was known for and now we're seeing a lot more sprites we're seeing a lot more whiz files we're seeing a lot more of those things so it's it's interesting um that you kind of wanted to take actors in that same route um but they but they kind of just never they just kind of never made it to that point huh right yeah. it was it, 
really kind of once we got something that was functioning yeah. and it was working within our process, we didn't over-engineer it. We didn't go back and just readdress things that we already considered a solved problem. Right. Um, but yeah, as we started getting into things where like actual 3D hardware rather than writing everything into a frame buffer like uh, we always had done, yeah. um, we had to, this, the same way of compositing things on 3D hardware, just not, the, I'll put that, 3D, uh, Direct 3D had uh, really liked Powers of 2. Uh, when we were doing experimenting with it and we had absolutely no limitations on us art wise uh for a particular size we didn't pad things to powers of two we we just basically had as many layers as you wanted as many limbs as you wanted well maybe not as many 16 limbs yeah. infinity <laughs> infinity limbs 16 <laughs> yeah 64 actors nobody needs more than that uh the uh once we got things going um things would uh not not change if we didn't have to right uh, and and the games reflected that as people got uh sprites and got more comfortable with them like i believe um Jamis sam didn't have sprites uh, i believe uh spy fox was the first to have sprites um, and that was in a um weird uh it had it you still used the api that was scum code wrapping around um uh, kluges to get mm -hmm. the the sprite commands in there um and at some point we switched over uh to actually having commands um, yeah. for that uh, that was when i learned uh yak and lex syntax um before before those uh my uh, compiler experience was you know looking over ron's shoulder if you will and you know, like, oh, well, that's how it works. All right, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, I had enough working examples for me to cobble in, you know, new syntax for things. Right. Um, and you can kind of see it structurally. You can see all the things that I worked on almost followed the, the way the actor system worked with syntactically, you know, uh, images uh, worked a certain way and sprites worked very very similarly um because we use sub opcodes rather than full opcodes for mm -hmm. things because at that point we were running out of numbers we had already used all of the zero to 255 <laughs> so there weren't any uh, free numbers anymore so we had yeah. sub opcodes you know there would be the actor opcode and then sub actor opcode of this or that yeah yeah, I mean that's that's very interesting um, to see see how these improvements were made and uh, when they were actually pushed into the pipeline and actually be more prominent in games. And definitely uh, one one thing I want to note before we move on to the next question, especially with the D three D demos, those were definitely something really cool. I, I really wish the the team looked at it a different way because that. To see, because I never thought Sputum was capable of doing something like that. So to actually see that actually happening was very interesting because I, I thought Sputum was limited. But seeing that, I'm like, huh, maybe it's not. So uh, it 
it was an experiment. Yeah. Um, it didn't go f- further than that. Um, but had it gone, we would have eventually gotten the actors accelerated by yeah. making them really be sprites. Yeah. <laughs> and th- that would have been really, really cool because the actor's state engine, the way they work internally, was quite complicated and beautiful um, in, in its own way. Almost like a little language uh, that it uh, worked with in itself for doing the art. And uh, sprites didn't have that. They were just big, dumb, hey, that goes fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or auto animates, you know, it doesn't, you know, play any logic. Then, no, it's just going to go to frame two after frame one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, no thoughts involved. It doesn't go ask the costume what, what it wants to do. Right. It just naturally goes to the next frame unless right. you tell it not to. Right. So cool. So cool. So, um, Let's try to breeze through some of these quick questions here. Um, so, out of all of the things that you worked on in Sputum, was there any like uh, quick ones that you could spitball at us that you wish did make it into the engine um, that actually did not? Well, I think that the um, the D three D actually was something I wish it would have. Uh, been introduced because mm-hmm. uh, that had just been cool to you know use the horsepower because yeah. we were always CPU bound you know since we actually used you know the CPU to draw all of the art um, when uh, graphic acceleration came around um, had so much bitmap data wasn't really there wasn't a lot of video RAM on these things so yeah. we couldn't just upload everything to the video card. Um, so we had to, you know, make things cache. Like you could only have a certain amount of textures in DRAM at the time. And then um, at some point they got really smart and they had a virtual memory-like management for the, the textures in D3D. But that, of course, wasn't in the version that was the lowest common denominator um, yeah. platform. Um, we always tried to target machines that were what we thought the hand-me-down machines were going to be, you know, so the games would run on those hand-me-down machines. Right. Um, although I, I really wish we had um, put in um, more effort to, you know, like I, I really wish we had done 32-bit uh, color yeah. rather than 8-bit color. Because um, realistically, when we made the switch for like... Um, Moon base used 16 bit color rather than 8 bit color, and uh, so did the Loose Clues adventure games. Uh, we used a, a lot more uh, different paletting uh, type of thing. Really wish we would have moved to the 32 uh, bit yeah. offers much uh, earlier along because then we would have had um, graphic fidelity. Uh, yeah. We could have done alpha blending, which we, we did some fake. Um, blending, um, if you will, on like the shadows and things like that. But those were all tricks, uh, well, palette <laughs> tricks, if you yeah. will. But if we had had actual colors, uh, you know, an alpha channel, we could have done that. But performance-wise, I, you know, we were already pushing, you know, almost five times as much graphic data as we were before, and then multiplying that by another factor of four bytes per pixel rather mm-hmm. than. One byte per pixel just yeah. wasn't 
wasn't really doable. Not on the platforms that we were saying we would run on. I mean, there was ridiculously low-end platforms out there. Yeah. And really terrible video cards. Yeah. Um, that could barely draw windows. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, yes. <laughs> Hopping on into the next question here. Um we're gonna we're gonna talk about the toll scum VM. Um, what are your thoughts on scum VM, and how well, in your eyes, do they uh, achieve at interpreting the games like the original Speedum containers did? Oh, I, th I think it's amazing. I mean, the fact that they were able to reverse engineer every data structure that uh, you know designed, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was a good sign that uh, it was all grokkable and understandable. I mean, uh, clearly a huge amount of effort was spent, you know, disassembling these projects to, yes. to get that, those fine details. Uh, the fact that they even reverse engineered the cup file uh, player uh, just blows my mind. I'm like, all right, that had some really bizarre things in there, uh, you know, that like, – uh, LZSS uh, compression streams that was very different, you know, than what we had been using because we were experimenting with that. Um, but yeah, no, the fact that anybody was able to get it working at all was amazing. And then get it working with so many variations because we had absolutely no intention for um, games to not be recompiled with different versions of Sputum. Right. So it's like we we built the tools so that you could compile the games again. Yeah. You know, I'd have to change syntactically or upgrade the the data structure or not data structure, but file formats and things like that. Yeah. But we were always recompiling the games with the latest set of tools. Yeah. Um, and that's how we kind of manage that process. Like when we do translations, we would do translations with the latest possible version of the uh, system so that it would be you know well enhanced to whatever the latest that we had built to yeah. um so yeah no the um yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's really that's really cool uh yeah, and it's cool you mentioned about the localization. We have a couple of friends in the uh, Humongous fandom that are always on the hunt for localizations because they're in different versions of uh, Sputum than what their original counterpart was, and there's just like a a group of us that just love finding those different versions of the game. is so cool, so cool. Um, moving into um, one of the next biggest chapters of Scum uh, at Nimbus Games. Can you tell us how that adventure started out for you? Well, sure. Um, Andy uh, Hickey uh, approached me and said, hey, I uh, got the license to uh, do uh, Putt Zoo. Mm -hmm. Would you like to um, help bring it over to iOS? And uh, so that's how that started. Uh, it was purely him saying, all right, I got this uh, license here, uh, and Atari's, you know, on board with it and yeah. all that. So um, after Adam, well, of course I want to be, you know, yeah. <laughs> involved in it. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to reboot these. Uh, yeah. Because it had been about 10 years at that point since uh, anything new had come out. Right. Um, not that, it, you know, rebuilding the games was something new coming out, but it did represent the option of us doing more with the humongous brand yes. than we previously did. Really wish we had um, 
put them on Steam first mm-hmm. rather than going to iOS. That would have been far smarter. Yeah. Um, but we thought that the handheld uh, devices and the iPad and all of that was like the perfect vehicle for those games. Yes. And it, uh, I think it was a really good platform. We may have uh, been smarter to go with Steam first. Yeah. It would have been far easier to get the Windows uh, versions running again. Uh, the Windows versions uh, work worked up until they removed the 16-bit startup app functioning, and that's the only thing that prevents the games from running. Is that 16? The thing that basically uh, we left in there because it used to be when wheel mouses first came out, mm-hmm. the little wheelie mouse uh, from Microsoft, um, <clears throat> their driver would crash. What? Uh, you would it would crash silently in the background. As we, what something that we were doing uh, to the cursors would cause that uh, driver to crash, and it would lock sputum in memory, um, so sputum never would quit. However, we found if we made a 16-bit app, and that would crash, uh, it would crash silently. But the 16-bit app or uh, 16-bit app would be what was stuck in RAM rather than sputum. Uh, so we just wrapped it in the 16-bit app, which would uh, had a double thing. It's like if you didn't have 32-bit Windows, it would offer to install a 32-bit version of Windows right. for you and all yeah. of that. And we just left that in there for the longest time because we worked, it worked you know, for forever. And I think we shipped with Win32S up until probably far longer than we should have. So um, does that explain the .w32 file in some of the games? Yes. Okay. Yes. The uh, .w32 is what's really running when you start the game. The .exe was really just a, a thin uh, wrapper around uh, the uh, box art that would show up when you did autoplay. And it would make sure that the computer had uh, 32-bit operating system would install it if you didn't okay pretty cool pretty cool um regarding the release of putt putt saves a zoo for ios what was the time span of andy reaching out to you and then actually getting a playable version on ios well it was pretty short turnaround um uh I actually had it up and running um, probably in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, it didn't have the correct palette or anything like that, uh, but it was, Putt-Putt was absolutely there on the screen, <laughs> you know, in his garish, you know, not the proper palette. <laughs> on the, uh, but yeah, no, that that happened really fast. Yeah. Um, probably a couple of weeks before I had it up and actually just displaying stuff, and that was really just the proof of concept. Um, the way um, Armalade worked was a lot. Uh, we did that as our porting layer because it would reach more than one app store. Mm-hmm. We could do Android, uh, iOS, and uh, Palm OS yeah. at the same time. Not that Palm OS ever actually did anything, but um, <laughs> they, they, they had the ability if, if it would have uh, done that. So... I was the, we poured it to Marmalade, then Marmalade gets all of these um, mobile devices for us. So that was the option that we took, rather than doing it straight to iOS or straight to Android itself. 
So um, was Marmalade? Marmalade was like the rapper for us uh, for Sputum uh, compared to how it was where, yeah, like back then when Sputum was actually like interpreted on each target. Marmalade was kind of like the the middleman between iOS and Sputum. Yes. Okay. It, it, we talked to it as well. It was really just a wrapper around um, OpenGL mm-hmm. and uh, an audio API. Uh, that's really what they provided um, for us. So we got um, all the platforms they supported if we ported to their little virtual platform, right. if you will. Um, so it was a layer on a layer. Yeah, no, it was OpenGL uh, internally. Mm-hmm. What made what what was the decision uh, decisions you were going through to actually using Marmalade versus using ScumVM? Did you at times looked at ScumVM to be like, hey, maybe we should go this way, Andy. What what was the reasoning behind doing Marmalade versus ScumVM? Like what's on the app stores now? Ah, well, uh, <laughs> Tari and Majestic Software kind of chat in the bed of uh, ScumVM. Okay. Uh, with the with the uh, Wii ports uh, yes. that they did. And uh, that is a huge mistake. So I didn't want anything to do with that. And since Mm -hmm. I had fairly intimate knowledge of what the system (laughs) entailed, uh, it was easy for me to port uh, because I had done it a a couple times at that point. Um, So it was was smarter for us to do that, to avoid any uh, possible uh, GPL violations and things like that. Yes. That was the reason. Also, we could customize the software. Like we made um, versions of the games that had uh, unlockables. Yes. So that involved going through and editing the scripts um, so that uh, like you could save like one animal and put, but saves the zoo and you know, and we would unlock all the rest of the game. Yeah. And uh, so we really wanted to be able to uh, make the games specialized for the iOS and those devices. Like yeah. there's a couple of special things we did. Um, not that everybody likes it, like playing uh, Happy Fun Sub is uh, ridiculously hard with the uh, tilt controls, even though I spent a lot of time getting that to work. Um, it was, I loved it. <laughs> getting it to integrate <laughs> into Scum was kind of cool. And then, uh, now one of the Freddy games uh, had a, a musical organ that, uh, in the iOS thing, it was too small for you to see. So we actually implemented a little zoom in specifically for that. That, that um, uh, something that was a one-off just for Freddy on the iOS. <laughs> I do remember that now, yeah. You could play with the organ there. Yeah. And that's... I, I, that's really cool to see that that's the reason why you guys went with doing it like this because probably without doing this, those things would have never existed. Um, and that that's really cool because um, other things came out of that like being able to create menus for the game. Um, and this is actually one of, one of the questions I want to ask you about. Why when the first batch of games came out, um, the menus were created in Scum, but then later switched over to HTML. What was the reasoning behind that? Oh, it turned out um, me making all the edits and using all the old tools um, 
I naturally I thought I'll make the menu and you know and scum we've got the tools we've, we're already making the games why not just you know use this and after I did the first one in scum um, I think the first actually three um, used those uh, horrible cobbled together versions of uh, half half of it was in marmalade and half of it was in scum mm -hmm. um, and none of it was integrated very well uh, so after failure of splat and uh, the other tools to basically be usable mm -hmm. uh, whoops also didn't run uh, so i couldn't define objects or change objects um, and i so i did all those things by manually editing the the files mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> i didn't want to do that for all of the games yeah and then um so I decided to go with HTML yeah. um, because when you hit the pause button, um, we had to, you know, bring up different interfaces for the different app stores and whatnot. And we were already wanting to put in uh, kind of banner ads, if you will, but banner ads for our own product up, up there. And we wanted to be able to change those live. Um, yeah. And that involved basically making a little web browser for it. And since we already had the little web browser for it, it made sense to, you know, do the text overlays uh, in HTML, and you know, it it went better that way. Yeah, uh, for us, it was easier to work in. HTML was easier to work in than Scum at that point. <laughs> <laughs> way easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, was so. One of one of the one of the things that people actually don't know about is Putt Putt Saves the Zoo was released uh, for Windows through Big Fish Games, and that did um, that did include things like the HTML menu. The new things that you added specifically, well, not specific, well, I guess specifically for Marmalade, um, um, and if I'm not mistaken mistaken, was Eric also brought back on the team for doing the Windows build, um, but. Was any yes. of that stuff hard to bring over to the Windows build that was made in Marmalade? Uh, I kept all this code as minimal changes as I could, and I wrapped everything I did and found if defs with my initials everywhere throughout the code, you know, for changes. And then Eric was able to just go in and diff out anything and see that they're, you know, oh, he changed this or change that and he was able to merge it in just fine yeah we yeah. really wish we had done the pc versions first it's been so, so much smarter um, yeah well i'm glad the experience was there because it, it definitely reignited uh the humongous franchise for a lot of people and i i know a lot of people who have families now um, a lot of their kids are playing on iOS, so it, it definitely, or it, we're playing on mobile, so it was definitely, I'm definitely glad the experience was able to be there because a lot of these parents who uh, may have grew up with them when they were kids are now, their kids are on their mobile phones and they're playing Puppet Save Zoo. They're enjoying the exact same game that they did when they were younger. So I think it was a cool experience. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, one last uh, question I want to quickly ask about marmalade here when you were writing it doing the ios builds did anything from the mac versions of sputum help you out in using those apis for ios or was it just let's learn how marmalade does it 
Uh, it was basically let's do the minimum amount of things uh, necessary to make it work on Marmalade. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that was basically my my goal was to um, get the things ported. Right. Um, the game archives were in a terrible state. Yeah. Um, they still are, from what I understand. Um, the uh, the source getting the source materials <laughs> was difficult, yeah. and getting them to recompile was uh, a challenge to get tools that hadn't been run in ten years yeah. uh, to run again. And um, yeah. yeah, no, it was definitely a, a worthwhile experience. I I really wish it had been more successful yeah. uh, for us. I, I I wish Tomo the best of luck and their ownership of it and all that. Uh, they wish it had been me owning it rather than them. <laughs> but hey, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get it. I do. That's a that's a tale for a different yes. time. Um random random out of the blue question here cuz um the the original scum menus, you mentioned that they were a lot of work done in marmalade to get them to work. So there, so a lot of the things, because all their assets are in Scum, but would you say a lot of their functionality is in Marmalade? So, like, once you reach the menu, um, is the only thing Scum handling at that point is just the assets? Uh, yes, it was uh, all being driven by these weird events that Marmalade had to respond to mm-hmm. uh, to, like, unlock uh, the uh, app store. You had to kind of, like initiate a request and you had to wait for responses and all kinds of weird handshaking that had to happen and all that stuff rather than trying to squeeze that into scum it just really was uh easier to do it in the code and matter of fact it is such a hack it's like the way the uh overlays and the arrows actually those uh arrows that show up uh like for skip and the uh, arrows on the going between rooms, yeah. which were new for the iOS stuff, uh, those are just absolute hack on hack. Uh, yeah. Just gross. I mean, I would hate to, you know, be judged on that code. But I was curious I... on how those worked because they 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 appeared and like I was curious were they actually like pulling the cursor sprites? Like, how did those work? <laughs> they. Uh... <laughs> I hacked uh, the system verb scanning script um, mm-hmm. to basically tell which object was over, and if it had a door arrow thing, then I would uh, throw up not sprites. They were actually rendered in the, the graphic blit routine. Uh, mm-hmm. It sat between the engine and that. <laughs> you know, so it was a, really this makeshift, horrible um display system uh, that handled the zoom mm-hmm. and ha- handling the screen rotation. Uh, believe it or not, uh, being able to rotate the screen at any moment and, and having your software respond to that, um, <laughs> getting that all correct, uh, sometimes the input would be upside down, the graphics would be upside down, the input right, and then mm-hmm. of course on uh, iOS there was two different volumes. Uh, there was like a weird app volume and then a ringer volume mm-hmm. and certain sound effects um, on the system you could turn up your volume you know I can hear all of the you know user UI clicks in the menus and things like that but I can't hear any sound and uh, having two different <laughs> audio outputs really uh, screwed that 
uh, up. But that's why the menu system and uh, graphic overlays are uh, a little less polished than they could have been. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's super cool. I, I bet um with everything that we talked about with audio already, I bet that was an interesting setup trying to get audio to properly function on iOS, especially with... Um, especially with how audio worked and looping and how much care had to be taken into it when it was originally made. Was that a hassle coming, bringing it back into a new system? It was, it was a hassle. The audio system, like we had discussed earlier, was always a bit of a, a misery and the uh, marmalade version of the mixer was no different. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that actually changed between that and um, and I really wish we had had this in the original engine, um, we used a ADPCM variation in the iOS versions, and we were able to drop the uh, sample size down to four bits a sample, and it still sounded uh, fairly or like the original. There were a couple places where it was very clear that we truncated um, some bits, but. Uh, and overall, it dropped the size by half. Yeah, we were able to take those CD products and get them down under 150 megs, which was kind of cool. So th- there's this was qu- uh, this was a question for a little bit uh, earlier in the questionnaire here, but I feel like now this is a good time to ask it. Um, with every advancement uh, Sputum and Scum has made, if you were to rebuild. Puppet joins the parade inside of the last version that had the advancements made to it. Would it compile? Absolutely not. I <laughs> would. <laughs> it would. Uh, it would fail because the uh, the way the I, IFO files that we had mm-hmm. uh, changed radically between it. Um, we uh, we did hack Windows versions of Puppet uh, and Fatty Bear. I believe mm-hmm. we did Fatty Bear too. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the activity packs too. Now that I'm thinking about it, uh, but yeah, no, those um, in its original state, it would not compile. Uh, each uh, variation after, um, yeah, after the 3DO, things got way more messy. It used mm-hmm. to be that we had a kind of a schedule that was inverse mm-hmm. from each other. Uh, the system group had a ship date of the beginning of the project and the ship date for the project was at the end where we were basically just fixing uh, things, not adding to the engine. And when we went to 3DO, we got in a lockstep, like the games that were going out were being made at the same time the engine was being made. Yeah, That continued. Uh, we never got off of that uh, sync. It, it took us a couple years to, get it to where one version of the engine was used for like three, I think three or four games at a time, you know, at a max. And then we would add something that would basically break the system in some way, luckily and unluckily for them. But our translation uh, group basically bore the brunt of those random changes and whims, Uh, Mm -hmm. but they did a fantastic job at it. We had a really good translation team. Uh, the um, products not quite as good as what Lucas had, yeah. Um, but but very similar process. I mean, we ha- we hired uh, good translators who 
fit the style very well. Well, to wrap up every uh, every bit of questions that I had for you before we move into the fan ones, um, we already kind of talked about it with the audio here, but um, from the last version that you worked on in 2013 of Sputum, what do you wish you had more time to improve on, change, or just drastically add to Sputum? Ah, well, I would... Higher quality audio across the board for all these products. Um, I, I wish we had uh, higher quality source assets to reprocess. That would have been really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, if, knowing that we didn't have that, we didn't have um, the data at all. I really wanted to add um, an anti-aliasing type of option, like an upscaler uh, to the games. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of cheesed out and let whichever game on whatever phone run in whatever aspect ratio, no matter how crazy, um, decided that was better than having empty space on the sides that we couldn't predict. Yeah. Uh, so just stretching it to the full display, um, I would have liked to have handled that better. Like it would have been kind of cool to have side holders if you will like it since it has to be letterboxed or you know vertically letterboxed because uh, the aspect ratio we could have put some really nifty graphics in there maybe the pause menu like they did with the switch um, yeah. stuff like that make things where the person holding the device wouldn't have to accidentally you know hit a leave the room mm-hmm. um, because their fat fingers were holding the device as well yeah. That would have been cool. And then um, I did some experiments with uh, FXAA, which was a anti-aliasing uh, shader, uh, and it looked fabulous. I, I actually would uh, – I wouldn't be surprised if they already have it inside ScumVM. I haven't dug around in there. Mm-hmm. But just throwing that over um, the original art, uh, does a pretty good job of uh, moving, removing some of those jaggies. Yeah, it's uh, not. I mean, it's not as good as having anti-alias, you know, lines. Uh, mm-hmm. And by the way, uh, your uh, HD version remix uh, remake looks great. Thank you. Appreciate uh, that. I I think that's fabulous. Uh, mm-hmm. I wish we could have had all smooth lines like that everywhere. <laughs> um, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, oh. Let's see. Super cool, yeah. I any any other improvements that you you wish you could have, and even um, if you got the chance to do in the latest version, any other ones that you could think of? Well, uh, better menus, the help system. I would have liked to elaborate on on that whole process because I think that we could uh, have integrated that into the product where the help was context sensitive, and mm-hmm. when you were in a room, it could bring up context specific help for that that would have been really cool and and things that we had so much more processing power and ram on right now it's like we have like infinity uh, in (laughs) comparison to you know what we had back in the day eight megabytes Um, yeah exactly (laughs) squeeze it all at eight megabytes and the operating system too Uh, yeah yeah, no that's um i i think uh, minimal changes i would have liked to have done more of the um Upsell. Uh, not that I wanted to. We needed to sell products because that's how you stay in business. Yes. Um, but having a demo of the game that allows you play a, uh, up to a, a stopping point, uh, I think we did really well at uh, 
dropping off Putzu. We got enough gameplay, but uh, they could, you know, get a sense of the game and then unlock it. And uh, the Pajama Sam one we did um, mm. also, I think it locked off parts of the game in a really good way. Uh, I, I wish we'd have had more of that. Um, there's, a, you know, people downloading these big games, mm-hmm. uh, uh, got kind of used to free stuff and, you know, the not knowing what you're getting, uh, I think, uh, you know, at even though it was like, like four bucks a, pro- a product, mm-hmm. I think that's what we've sold at like three ninety nine or some ridiculous yeah. price. <laughs> um, the, uh, the upsell I think would have been just great to have everywhere yeah. and all of the products just be done that way yeah. rather than having two separate versions. Um, yeah. Music. That would, that would be, we could easily replace that. <laughs> yes. A lot of people were, I, I don't know which era it was from. I don't know if it was from the Nimbus Games era or if it was from the Tomo era, but there was, for a while now, people were like, oh yeah, it's, they're going to use the HD music for it. I'm like, what? Where's this coming from? <laughs> but maybe someday, maybe someday. I know um, ScumVM now will... Me and my friend did uh, sound overrides for it, so you can actually play the game with the high-definition music that still exists now, and I think Tom McGurk is working on getting uh, getting some of his release, so I think we're going to see more of that in the future of these games with the soundtracks that they were originally created with. Um, Oh, that's great. I love to to see it. Any fidelity improvement that makes it more current. I mean, there's a charm to the way the games look. I mean, as far as pixel art goes, I think it's it's wonderful. Uh, And we got more pixel art in our our games than most people did at the time, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think was cool. But smooth lines would have been even cooler. (laughs) No, No doubt. The one interesting about pixel art is technically it is HD because it can upscale pretty well. It's just you're going to see those little tiny pixels uh, just bigger now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of the sins are exposed when you see something four times bigger. Yes. <laughs> um, one more random question that I did just think about because we were talking about ScumVM for a little bit. Has there been any secret little improvements that you made on ScumVM without them knowing about it? No. no. I have stayed away from uh, ScumVM's source or mm-hmm. making any changes because I didn't want to embroil thing that I might have covered under NDA and past licenses oh. and stuff like that. I would hate to basically muddy that water right uh, it's a it's a wonderful uh community and tremendous effort has been put there but uh, i wouldn't wouldn't know where to well begin to, to make the changes first of all i mean I've, i look over the code every once in a while because i'm always curious to you know how how something's done but uh, i don't know how i would manage that minefield if you will yeah well, it's almost time to wrap this up. Let's jump into a few fan questions here. Uh, the first one being, uh, what is the best part of working on the Scum Engine, either at LucasArts or Humongous, and any uh, favorite games from these two companies? Uh, yes. What was the, the most fun? Working on the animation systems was the most fun. Mm-hmm. At, uh, 
it was eye-opening seeing what they already had when I started. I liked uh, some of the aspects of trying to get things to be small on disk and fast to display. Mm -hmm. I liked that sort of, that's a type of puzzle that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the engine had lots of areas to employ those type of puzzles. Um, yeah. So I, uh, that was, that was fun. Yeah. And as far as favorite um, games, Monkey Island, since it was my very first project that I had worked on, I think that is coolest uh yeah. and it's also got the most name recognition i mean i have all the games it, it definitely has lasted the tell of time <laughs> many times over um yeah the visually i think day of the tentacle out of the lucasarts stuff might be my favorite visually mm -hmm. i think it's just cartoony and animated in just the right way i like it um sam and max also same type but some unbelievably good pixel art when you yeah. look at it uh, just considering it's 320 by 200 it's a really screwy aspect ratio to have to draw in uh the art is just primo it looks good yeah. uh as far as humongous's products uh, i think uh, zoo might be my overall favorite pajama one also i really liked a lot of aspects of that Yes, I like the world of Pajama Sam, and the animation of the minecart uh, stuff is just so over the top, and it's in such a you know small amount of the game, but it is just so well done, you know, just amazing animation. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you know people appreciated it, you know, <laughs> it, yeah. but it's really really cool, exaggerated animation. Oh yeah, and it just looks great. And then, of course, Moonbase, uh, since it used all the features and then some. Yes. <laughs> Moonbase still is an amazing, amazing game. I love playing that. It still amazes me how many features it, it uses from the engine. So cool. But, wow. All right. Uh, wasn't Scum partly owned by LucasArts? Why was Humongous allowed to use it in their games? And what were the terms? I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but just... Uh, uh, talk about their question a little bit more. Uh, well, the the terms, I'm not entirely sure of all the terms of the agreement because at, at some point there was a little snag between the two companies, um, I, which I actually have no idea what it was beyond my pay grade and I didn't need to care. <laughs> I, I, knew I, was, I knew I was safe either way. You mm -hmm. know, if, if Humongous went away, I'd go back to LucasArts if they'd have me. So that was, that was, uh, how was that? The uh, terms, uh, Ron and I uh, represented a bulk of the tools, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just like the compiler, the art tools, um, the uh, engine, uh, you know, Ron's half of the engine. And uh, so it really, there was probably about four or five people in the team at that point. Point when, we, when we decided to leave and two of the significant contributors were basically taking off um, so Ron convinced them that hey we can continue to work on this stuff uh, and you get it all back uh, so it's like free engineering um, and they uh, took that as a as a good uh, deal exchange yeah. and I think we made good on it um, 
because we shared a lot of technology over the years and it definitely they got a lot of good stuff out of our engagements like uh, some of the things that we did to compress and get putt butt to fit on floppy disks like it did with voice um, most of that stuff was uh, stored in you know audio was the, where we almost the entire game is data set is all audio yeah. and uh so that meant all of the graphics had to get smaller. And we did some really cool graphic tricks to do that. And mm-hmm. I don't know if LucasArts knew that some of the finer points of getting um, the art optimization in there, yeah. um, they probably could have um, squeezed, you know, one more disc out of Day of the Tentacle if it would have shipped on floppy uh, if they had uh, used some of the techniques that we were using. Yeah. Like we had a a, a tool called, uh, actually it was a pair of tools. It was called a, a You Sweat and You Smell. Okay. Uh, the uh, You Sweat was designed to take uh, deluxe paint animator files and use uh, do your scripting over the top of a deluxe paint animator. So all of the art tools that the artists were using were there and present in the tool and then you would just load um, your dpaint animator file into you sweat and mark it with the tokens like start here you know this is that animation this is this limb etc and then you smell would compress that mm-hmm. and during uh, the development of you smell uh, ron and i uh, and uh, brett barrett actually probably more so brett barrett than anybody because he was our kind of like costume crunchifier if you will um the art if we needed to squeeze something out uh nobody did it better than brett hmm. um just good planning you know knowledge of the tools and just creativity but so we uh, took a lot of the things that brett would be doing uh, to optimize out uh uh pieces of art that could be stamped into the background or not. And we move that uh, logic into um, you sweat or you smell specifically. Uh, and it uh, allowed us to uh, build what we called component pages. So we would end the animation with things that we knew we wanted to chop up. It would just take these pieces of art and have them chopped up already. Mm-hmm. And then the um, compressor would go through and see if any of the chopped up pieces would be matchable inside of the original art and it would uncomposite that so it's like for instance um the tire scene and uh, where he blows his tires off mm-hmm. the tires bounce over uh animating that and getting those tires all being the same component uh when you could uh, you know, obviously the tire bounces and whatnot. That was all done um, in a deluxe paint animator file, which is just a, a single layer. Mm-hmm. So, and we didn't uh, have the space to, you know, have that was a significant portion of the screen animating at the time, even though it was just a little tire, um, yeah. you know, but you had the fuel pump and the car body and the tires bouncing off and a lot of it animating stuff. But, uh, those tires could easily be found and located. And so we, we would just search for, you'd put tires in the component page, and then it would go and find any use of that same exact tire and just automatically create a layer for you. 
and it, then it would do this recursively. So as it started pulling art apart, it would find other parts to uh, composite. Like, let's say you had something that passed in front of Putt Butt and occluded a portion. Mm -hmm. If that thing was going to be occluded by something else, it would put a putt putt that doesn't make any sense because it knows a layer on top of it is going to occlude it. And it would just basically take these things apart. And that was just a cool one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that was cool stuff. Yeah. I, I love, I, I, I love animation and I love art myself. So this is, this is really cool to see how these tools handle everything and just know how to use space and Ram properly instead of just like, well, here's some art. Let's display it, and uh, hopefully have enough space and RAM to display it. So that's really cool. Which humongous game uh, release required the biggest overhaul to Scum, and why was that uh, necessary to do for that release? Uh, Freddy Fish was mm -hmm. the biggest uh, change for us. Uh, I don't know. Might have been the biggest change in the system because uh, everything changed. Um, uh, we went high res and windows at the same time. Yeah. So that, um, that was by far the most effort. We also didn't change the ship date. We originally started the game in 320 by 200. The game was probably more than halfway complete when we basically decided that we needed to change and make it high res. Um, that was our first change, which was high res. Um, it was clear you know we needed to to do that and then we went that extra step which was high res and in windows yeah. and uh, that required tool set changes um, the high res tools got flaky when we were uh, combining it with windows and alt tab and things that were part of the process which led us into building new versions of tools uh, lots of those didn't come about until, like Putzoo, I believe, was the first product to use uh, uh, Whoops, which was the replacement for Flem, mm -hmm. and it um, was much more stable. <laughs> you know, you didn't have to worry about it crashing when you all yeah. tabbed away from it. And the uh, Windows, we had to basically write whole new audio mixer. We discussed that, um, yeah. and then of course, performance-wise, there were uh, just displaying pictures in windows on some machines was really slow and so we had to make everything else take as little uh, resources as possible so that final blit uh, displaying the image would happen as fast as it could yeah so we did did a lot of um, you know drawing into the front buffer when we absolutely didn't have any other option we couldn't draw the background and copy it from the background to the foreground and the foreground to the screen yeah. uh, we tried to keep things moving in, only in the foreground and that um, well, made things more look more efficient than they yeah. they really were all right and the final fan question i have for you which will wrap up all of our questions for today is just a fun little uh non uh humongous or lucas arts uh question but do you think vr and ar will ever reach a point of widespread adoption or are there too many hundreds uh in cost bulk to ever reach that point like do you ever see vr ar games and such like that going out to the public oh yeah i uh, that's gonna happen uh, AR, I believe in more so than VR, 
because mm-hmm. the encompassing headset and being uh, that's a whole different ball of wax. I think um, having cool little overlays uh, in your world, just in general, yeah. uh, without having to hold a phone to to see them, yeah. uh, will be cool. Once once there are a pair of glasses that have zero friction for you putting on and taking off, like um, I, I see that as changing the world. Yeah. Um, probably for the the better in the most part i mean sure the advertising horrors that we've seen those you know what it will look like when everything's gamified you know yeah. <laughs> i think uh, that one video that probably everybody's seen the lady on the bus and everything she gets hacked and everything that she looks at suddenly changes into unpleasant you know features and uh, that is a reality that we'll eventually have to deal with but the technology, I can't imagine anything cooler than being able to look down and see a virtual object in your field of view that you can interact with. Um, yeah. That changes things. Like there was a Microsoft uh, third-person view of um, Minecraft that oh, they yeah. show the over overarching view, and you could see down into it. That clearly is just cool, and uh, the technology will be here hell it already is here yeah uh, I, I i suspect apple's glasses will probably be really cool when they come out they probably will be <laughs> some say they might announce them this year probably not though but <laughs> man well that's super duper cool i I can't wait to see where future takes technology and to see uh see the fun stuff that is coming ahead well Brad, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I hope the fans enjoy the uh, Programmer's Digest. Um, I know a lot of people have been asking for this type of interview with you for a while now, so hopefully uh, we were able to answer everyone's questions out there. And um, before we head out, uh, where can the fans find you and follow any current projects you're working on? Um, let's see. <laughs> current projects. Uh I think looking on Twitter, uh, the handle I go by is Lard Rat Boy, L-A-R-D-R-A-T-B-O-Y. Mm-hmm. It's an anagram for Brad Tigler. Ha, that is. So Twitter forward slash uh, Lard Rat Boy. Uh, same for GitHub. I put stuff on GitHub every once in a while. Um, I, I did a tool that's very similar to Splat um, after I left uh, Humongous. And that is up there in a runnable form. Um, I didn't put the source up yet because it is just absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> nobody should be subjected to it. Uh, I mean, the program still works. Um, <laughs> you know, use the program uh, if if it uh, pixel art is your thing. Um, yeah. it does it does it okay? Um, yeah. No. Uh, Twitter is where I've been using uh, lately for my uh, displaying things and whatnot. But although I think that's going away, if they're going to start charging people 20 bucks a month for uh, verification, yep, I, I see that, I see that going away really quickly. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be sure to follow you up on Twitter and check you out on GitHub. Well, again, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much. All right, Brad. Thank you, everybody, for watching, and we'll see you later. 